The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, have you ever woke up balls deep in a model during a Thursday afternoon three-way and thought, my life is just the worst? Or you know that moment when you come down from a glittering high, nestled between a silver stripper's angel wings and your bro's rubber horsehead mask and decide, I'm gonna head out towards the desert today, you know, for Jesus or whatever. And as you're staring into the twisted spiked husks of Joshua Tree's shrubbery, have you unwaveringly thought, Kierkegaard was right, I regret everything. Well, let's find out. Because today we are wandering through the wide-angled, glittering LA hellscape of Terrence Malick's 2015 Night of Cups. So sit back, grab your tarot deck, and inhale a mountain of ketamine as we meander through the Gnostic plight of a pilgrim without progress. Brought to you by GoPros and K-Holes, only acknowledging the major arcana, a pilgrim's grimmest progress, searching for pearls in the debauched west, the angst of Kierkegaard, and the maybe twin of Jesus. And of course, our safe word today is clarity. Anything to add, Benji? London, I think that we need to take some creative notes from Mr. Terrence Malick and record way more than we actually need and then edit that down to something that is still kind of long. Oh, if only that was something we didn't do. Oh, that is kind of like what we do yeah. every episode, isn't it? God damn it. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. Hey, London. Yo, Benji, uh, what is up? My name's Ben, but this is an episode I know going into it where not a lot of people are going to know what this movie is. And I don't know how many people are going to say to themselves, huh, let's see what these two have to say about it. But I know that the right people are going to be into this episode. I thought you were going to say, I don't know how many people have seen this movie, and I don't know how many people are going to want to see this movie. I still haven't seen the movie. Jeez, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've watched it three times. I don't think I've seen this movie still. I, I get that. I can see what that might mean to you right there. This is a very strange film, and it is filled with meaning, and yet it has no meaning at the same time. It's one of those films, again. We like to cycle back around to are meaningful, meaningless films. So we're going to try, by God, to pull some meaning from this film. Yes, and this film being... (laughs) This film being Terrence Malick's 2015 movie, quote-unquote, Night of Cups. One can't really call that... I was going to say, this is a movie, obviously, but to say that this is a movie with anything resembling a three-act structure or typical hero's journey is absurd. You can't say that. This is a meditation to watch this film. Yeah, this is definitely a film. It's certainly one of the more pure cinema types of films that we have talked about that term before when 
pure cinema being a type of filmmaking in which you cannot somehow separate the act of making the film or what the technology of film brings to storytelling from the story. And that is something that Terrence Malick is very known for, that he is considered one of those directors, along with Tchaikovsky and Hitchcock is actually associated with this as well. The idea that you cannot separate what he is filming from the story. Most films, you have a narrative, you have a plot down in the script, and there are multiple ways to film that plot. That maybe something like Twilight, for example, which we did just last week, nobody can do Twilight like Catherine Hardwick. We made that argument and she made it great, but somebody could have taken that script and you could have had the same resulting story, just maybe with not as much style or mm. bizarreness. Or a different style that just may have not has been as exciting as what Catherine Hardwick was, was going for. But Yeah, you yeah. take the images, however, out of Malick and mm. you don't have the story anymore, mm. right? The editing, the cinematography, the lights, the movement, that is what is creating the story. And that's that's what makes this a pure cinema experience. Mm -hmm. So if anything, this is more of a film than most films we get. This is pure <laughs> cinema. God damn, it's such a film. A film it is. Yeah, I actually do really like this film. I like it more than most of Terrence Malick's stuff. I really respect Terrence Malick as a director. I like what he's trying to do. I find a lot of his films very excruciating to sit through because they are very slow. They are very meditative, they're very philosophical. You have to be in the right mood for a Terrence Malick film. And this one's my favorite of his. Hope you didn't pay for that full seat when you watch Tree of Life, because you only need the edge of it, huh? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, there we go. Yeah, no, he's, he's not a master of suspense by any means. So what is this movie? Lightning summary of this movie. <laughs> Is <laughs> lightning okay yeah. you go ahead and you climb that Everest to try and make a lightning summary of this beautiful thing go for it Christian Bale young Rick is overwhelmed with a certain type of existential despair because he feels like his life is meaningless and he can't feel anything and so he is going to embark on an odyssey throughout Los Angeles and Las Vegas, more or less, looking for meaning in a potentially vast Gnostic universe. <laughs> and in order to do that, he's going to replicate the 17th century novel A Pilgrim's Progress, and he is also going to throw some little other literary references and philosophical references and spiritual references in along the way. And I'm here today to tell you what those references are. And then a whole bunch of stuff is going to be tarot-based, and that's kind of what I'm bringing to the table today. So, yeah, it's mostly just a collection of images that will amass into an abstract life of a man. It's a very modernist piece, right? I was We've got say... T.S. Eliot, those shores... Or those fragments I have shored against my ruins, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite lines from The Wasteland. A man's life is a composite of recalled fragments. And we are going to get those fragments out of the sequence of time, which is how memory operates. And we're going to see the sum of the life of this man and how he feels like it amounts to nothing until he goes to try to make it about something. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, that really sums up, it seems, the way that Terrence Malick likes to work these days. 
Or ever, really. Or ever, really. I think that the age of digital cinema really opened things up a lot more for him because as we learned, and as most people know about Terrence Malick, his method of filmmaking, it seems, is to film, have you have going with a broad idea, a broad sensation of what you would like the story to be, film and film and film and film and film and film, and just film so much, and then in the editing, find the story. I've sometimes heard that filmmaking... Writing for film is three stages. The first is the script, what's on paper. The second time you write it, you're filming it. Because sometimes as you film, you realize some things that worked on paper just are not working visually. And then the third time you write it is in the editing, when you cut everything together. And that really applies to how Terrence Malick does his thing. So one of my favorite quotes that I came across while researching this about this movie is that... It's most impressive as an extended wallowing visual rift on a line Carrie McWilliams once used to describe the great appealing paradox of Southern California, that the metropolitan region is a desert that faces an ocean. And so to wrap up our lightning summary here, we are going to have that paradox, right? Mm. It is a man in the desert facing an ocean and that that is the paradox of LA. And so this of course is going to be set in LA using that trope, which we have seen again and again. And in order to do this, Emmanuel Lubinsky, he is back. He is back, and I'm so excited about this. When did we see him last? I forget. We last saw him in Sleepy Hollow. Right, right, okay, yes, yeah. So I guess we'll do best thing, worst thing, because my best thing is that Emmanuel Lubinsky is back, last seen in Sleepy Hollow. Gorgeous, gorgeous cinematographer. And this movie is going to be gorgeous. All right. Say what you want about its plot structure, whatever. It is pretty to look at. It's stunning what images he was getting and the different styles they they went for in their imagery. What is your worst thing about the film? Uh, It could have been an hour and 20 minutes shorter. (laughs) Everything that I have to say about this movie really can be all front-loaded and will be front-loaded in the first 20 minutes, and then it's going to be a repeat cycle. And it's through that repetition that meaning does emerge on deeper levels, but it's the same meaning that we get in the first 20 minutes. So, yeah, it's a little long. Uh, You want this film to be an hour, 20 minutes shorter. You realize this is only a two-hour film. I do, yeah. Okay, so you wanted Terrence Malick to give you a 40-minute film. After (laughs) after all the filming and editing he did, you just think, Mr. Malick, really, I I only need something for my lunch break. Uh, Yeah, this could have been 25 minutes. would have been great. (laughs) I feel that way about a lot of Terrence Malick's movies. I'd say, I see the beauty of the new world. I get it. That river is gorgeous. You're catching that light. Do we really need to watch these characters go down it for 10 minutes without a break? Do we? I don't know. So, yeah, I just I don't have the the interior solitude, fortitude, patience, concentration required for Terrence Malick films usually. But on the flip side, I do love that vapid and shallow exploit of Los Angeles. It's a tired trope. It's been done again and again. I don't care. I'm there for it every time. (laughs) (laughs) So he just finally found a medium that I didn't mind sitting and watching for an extended period of time, which is just the lavish decadence hellscape that is Los Angeles. All right. My best thing 
is my worst thing about this film. I whenever I thought about this, this just feels like a cop out. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for it anyway. The best thing and the worst thing about this film is that it makes no sense in a strange way, and I like that. And it also complicates the whole thing. I like that it doesn't really make much sense, or that it, getting a meaning out of this is difficult. But in having to try to explain this film to people, like we are about to try and do, it becomes very difficult because you <laughs> you have to say like, oh, and then well, then he talks. To, uh, well, then he doesn't talk to people, and then he continues to not talk to people, and then his father is on a stage for no reason, and. Then, uh, then his brother punches. Um, uh, but then Natalie Portman has a baby. Uh, fuck. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so it makes it because we love to go down our deep dives. We love to do our annotations, and that becomes tricky with a film like this. Not impossible. We're gonna have ourselves a go of it. Don't you worry. But I feel this will be a difficult one. I think to break down, uh, and I that that might be why people don't really talk about this film too often. I noticed that. As I've said in the past, sometimes I will go on and see what other like what other podcasts are talking about. Like whenever we pick a movie, I check out like what how many other podcasts have talked about this film. As near as I can tell, I could not find a podcast out there that dedicate a single episode to this. When you search, really? yeah, if you search Night of Cups, you'll often get a short podcast concerning the tarot, like explaining that individual card, or you'll get movie podcasts that are, that did discuss this film, but are also discussing other films that came out at the time. So, like, you know, just movie review podcasts where they talk about, like, three or four movies, and they'll briefly mention Night of Cups and just say, oh, it's kind of confusing. And, you know, it's pretty, but it's confusing. That's it. I couldn't find any of the other episodes of podcasts that dedicate themselves to this one movie. So, we, the cultists, are here to digest and unpack the undigestible and ununpackable. See, and I find this movie totally fine and clear. Just so lucid, <laughs> and, you know? Yeah, it's totally lucid. And I mean that. And I think that's maybe because I notoriously don't really care about plot that much. And I have a hard time paying attention to plot usually in movies because I'm so busy paying attention to all of the technical components. And since the plot of this is so tied in with its technical components, mm. I actually absorb the plot just fine because the technical components are telling it. And yeah, it is one of those ones like Southland Tales where you gotta bring your mm -hmm. research to it. You need to know your Pilgrim's Progress. You need to know the Hymn of the Pearl. You need to know about Gnosticism. You need to know about the tarot. And you also need to know a little bit about the works of Kierkegaard and other philosophic works on meaning and fulfilling meaning. And once you have that, it's fine. It's totally clear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how many uh, how many different books do you think on your end need to be consumed and uh, digested and then brought to I the mean, table here? I mean, still less than Southland Tales. <laughs> Southland Tales still takes the cake for how many uh. goddamn pieces of just external text one needs to read in order to fully even begin to understand the film. And I respect the hell out of that about Southland Tales. And I also, I do see what this movie's trying to do here. So let's talk about it. Let's, let's talk about what this movie's trying to do. get into this movie. Okay. This movie opens with text that I don't know I've ever seen on another movie, where before anything starts, we have in white letters this message from the producers. For optimal sound reproduction... The producers of this film recommend that you play it loud. 
Yeah, so you're expecting, okay, we're about to rock like, and roll. No. What are we doing? It's going to be a very slow, meditative sound. It does have an amazing sound design, though, so mm. I get that. But yeah, life needs to come at you loud, right? Full audio stereo. <laughs> Although now that I see that, that does sound familiar, not to this film. There's another film that opens that way. Oh, yeah? And I want to say it's Velvet Goldmine, but... I'm just pulling that out of nowhere because I have not gone back to check that. But I do feel like Velvet Goldmine opens very similarly. Maybe not with that exact phraseology, but very close. Play it loud enough and you will hear Ewan McGregor's dick. You'll hear it. Yeah. And what does Ewan McGregor's dick sound like? Hi there. I'm Ewan no, McGregor's dick. We're not bringing back your Vin Diesel Mickey Mouse voice. <laughs> Hard limit. All right. So... How does this film begin after we crank up the volume and play it loud? With this voiceover. The pilgrim's progress from this world to that which is to come, delivered under the similitude of a dream, wherein is discovered the manner of his setting out, his dangerous journey, and safe arrival at the desired country. And we have our title card, Knight of Cups. The thing that I do like about this opening is that it tells you exactly what this film is. The Pilgrim's Progress. Well, there you be. That's pretty much right there. It's the Pilgrim's Progress. It's the knight who is, he's of the cups and he's going to have himself a, a progress much like a pilgrim. It, it makes sense. Yeah, and don't you worry, I'm going to explain what the Pilgrim's Progress is here in a second. But okay, all right, well. When we have this opening, yeah, it tells us we are in the heart of the Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to open with a quote from it, and not only are we going to open with a quote from it, we're going to open with the title of that work within the quote, so that it just situates you really quickly. We are doing the Pilgrim's Progress. And the Pilgrim's Progress, it's a religious text of sorts, mostly about a man who is trying to work his way to salvation, to faith, or what have you. And so to coordinate with that, we have the opening shots of Christian Bale and or a man in a desert. <laughs> out in the desert. Out in the desert, out near like Joshua Tree or something, where it's... So it's not, it's, once again, it's that paradox of L.A., right? The desert facing the ocean. It's actually a very cultivated, very populated space out in L.A., and yet somehow there are still those patches of just desolate desert and sand. Christian Bale's in them, so we're invoking that man in the desert religious imagery very quickly. He's looking up the light. He's squinting up at that sun because it's so bright and it hurts his eyes, even though he lives underneath the sun all the time. <laughs> Whatever. You're in L.A., for God's sakes. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, the land of sun, and we get this introduction that this is Christian Bale playing Rick, a dude named Rick. You don't hear Rick being used that often as names in movies. And I don't know why Rick. Like, I feel like this must be a reference to something because there's so many references in this movie. And I could not tell you. I almost feel like it's probably short for Alaric, but I don't know what Alaric they're taking from from medieval literature. If there is an importance to the name, it was not imparted on the actor. I was watching this. It was a press conference at the Berlin Film Festival where this when this film was coming out. And it was Christian Bales and the producers. Natalie Portman was there, too. And Christian Bale is talking about the character, and he says, uh, so then when we have the main character, uh, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Oh, Rick. That's it. Yeah, Rick. So 
He didn't remember what the name of the fucking guy was. <laughs> so he didn't care much. Yeah, yeah, he didn't really care too much. And I get the feeling Terrence Malick didn't put too much importance on the name of this guy. Because really, when you go through the names in this movie, they're kind of just bleh. They're just normal, average names. There's, you know, Barry, Joshua, Rick. There's a character named Karen, for fuck's sake, in this movie. I mean... There's also, though, other references. There's Helen, who is clearly this reference to Helen of Troy. And we also have a Delilah-Delia sort of overlay from the Delilah myth. So there's a lot of biblical and Greco-Roman allusion names where there are some names. But, yeah, why some of these names might be glossed over in some capacity is because of the way that naming works in the Pilgrim's Progress. Oh. So... As we have Christian Bale wandering through this desert, we will zoom out. We're going to get some Aurora Borealis shot. This also really reminds me a lot of like Andrei Tchaikovsky or something where we have these really slow shots of the cosmos (laughs) to really orient our characters. It's like that since the dawn of man introduction where usually, so in rhetorical writing classes, generally students are told when writing an introduction, you want to start broad, but not so broad, right? You want to avoid the sense the dawn of man introduction unless you really plan to then proceed to talk about a narrative that really needs to start with since the dawn of man, right? 2001 Space Odyssey is a great example of a movie that does start with since the dawn of man and Mm -hmm. it wants it, it needs it. And we're getting that here a little bit too. We're getting the since the dawn of the cosmos, This story that is about to follow it has existed. And we get more voiceover from the Pilgrim's Progress. That we do. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I believe that's Ben, from what I understand, that's Ben Kingsley, or Sir Benjamin Kingsley, doing the opening narration there. He's one of the few narrators that we never see. Anyone else in this film who does a voiceover, we see them at some point on camera, but uh, yeah, Mr. Kingsley does not show up. And, God, yeah, you hear that some of that sound design, that rumbling. As he's saying this, we're in space, by God. You talk about in some space. Kubrickian 2001 Dawn of Man action. Like, we're in motherfucking space. It's very obvious that it's footage from the International Space Station because you can, like, see part of the trusses of the space station in the top, in the top of the frame. But it's just gorgeous footage of the Aurora Borealis above Earth. Yeah, getting their money's worth out of that stock footage. Yeah, this is basically all just like standard Malik 101 stuff. <laughs> just like a collection of images about a man in his life and then shots from the space station. <laughs> You've seen one Malik film. You've seen a scene from another one, probably. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's that is kind of true, though. Most Malik films are a privileged white dude being so sad about being a white dude with no meaning in his life, looking for meaning within the large vastness of the cosmos. It's a... It's a mood, right? Yep. And, and this was also a mood in the Pilgrim's Progress. All right. So um, I'll, I'll talk about Pilgrim's Progress here. So once upon a time, 
that time being the 1650s to the 1670s, there was a dude named John Bunyan. And he was a dude who really wanted to preach stuff. He had some faith, he wanted to share it, and yet there were some problems with this because at the time he was what was called under the conviction of sin. The church had declared him a sinful being, mostly because as far as I understand, I read some of the different autobiographies of this dude because he kind of had a weird, interesting life in some ways. But apparently he was playing this game on a Sunday and it was like what the UK called like hoops or something or tipping the tin where I think it's, I've seen that in films before old school eyes where you have like those two sticks and you're trying to keep a hoop off the ground or something. I don't know. Children's games are weird. Especially the English ones. Yeah. He, he was doing this on a Sunday and that was against, you know, the Sabbath Uh, or the Lord's day or whatever. He also apparently was very profane. Like He was a very foul-mouthed individual, as it were. I'd like to swear all the time, and so... I mean, that's one thing, but hoops on Sunday? Come on, man. Yeah, so this was like a thing. And what was even more of a thing was this little thing called the Conventicle Act of 1664. And what that did was placed a lot of restrictions on lay preachers. It was a time in England in which they really wanted to maintain as much organized church authority as possible. There's a lot of historical reasons for this. I'm going to spare everyone and not lecture about (laughs) this particular act in 1664. But if you want to know more, by all means, look up the religious and political environment of England in the 17th century. So what I will say here, though, is that there was this growing pressure on the lay folk to adhere to a very particular regimented Church of England kind of structure. And they kept revising these laws and acts to dissuade non-sanctioned preachers from preaching. And that was actually kind of funny to read all the different little setups where It would be, this is not verbatim, but just kind of examples of things where it was like, you can't preach in front of a congregation. And so they would put veils up between the preacher and the congregation. And they're like, okay, so you found a loophole. All right, you can't preach in the same building as the congregation. And so they would put a bunch of people in a room and then the preacher would stand outside a window and he would preach. And then they're like, God damn it, you found another loophole. Okay, no one can preach within five miles of X. And so then these little preachers would like walk out five miles. You know, they would (laughs) do uh, their preaching outside of a five mile radius from a building. So they kept trying to find a way, you know, lay preachers, they find a way. And John Bunyan, he found a way, and so he preached shit anyway, even though he was not a sanctioned member of the official church. And so he went to jail. He actually went to jail twice. And during these two different times in jail, he's like, well, I'm not doing anything else. I might as well write a book. And so he oh. starts writing this book called The Pilgrim's Progress. And what does this story tell us? Well, the entire book starts out as a dream. It tells us right from the beginning. So at least it doesn't wait to the end to say, and it was all a dream. Instead, it tells you in the opening lines. This is all a dream. This is a dream. I like a good honest start to the whole thing. Yeah, it starts and is like, this is a dream sequence and it's gonna be narrated by this omniscient narrator. So 
Sort of like our movie starts with a narrator that we never see because that narrator is omniscient and all-knowing and not physically appearing in the narrative. Mm -hmm. This is an allegory. It's going to tell the tale of Christian, an everyman character. <laughs> and the plot centers on his journey from his hometown, the City of Destruction, which is, aka this world, or in this particular film, Los Angeles, to the celestial city, or that which is to come. So, aka heaven by most allegorical Christian readings of the Pilgrim's Progress. But in this movie, is kind of more just meaning ness I guess. The celestial city is something that he is striving for, our Christian Bale Rick character. Actually, it's kind of fun that Christian Bale is playing this Christian character from wow. Pilgrim's that's Progress. Actually, that's funny because that press conference I mentioned, one of the reporters asks Christian Bale, uh, how much of yourself do you see in the main character from this thing, Rick? And he just... He, it's like one of those answers that you know some actors give to just completely shut down the conversation mm -hmm. where he just very solemnly says, I don't compare myself to the characters that I play. Okay. Uh, I, all right, whatever. No I mean, more questions. Damn, Mr. B okay, Mr. Bale. That's but yeah, he's playing Christian, yeah. I guess. A Christian <laughs> named Christian here. And Christian the Pilgrim. So hmm. I will say Pilgrim Christian <laughs> is weighed down by a great burden. Uh -huh. and this burden is the knowledge of sin. And he's going to carry this burden with him. And it's so heavy, man. And it just bends him over the entire time. He's going to wander through a lot of stuff and a lot of people. And it's super subtle. You ready for this subtle art? Yeah, sure. Some of the people he will encounter, and this is a very long book. This is actually one of the first novels written in English, if not the first novel. And it was a very big seller at the time that it came out. Oh, okay. so this was everywhere. People liked this, the subtle art. Some of the highlights of the things that are going to happen in Pilgrim's Progress, he's going to come across a character named Evangelist, who shows Christian this thing called the Wicket Gate. Not wicked with a D, but wicket with a T, which just means the narrow gate. And Christian... He can't see it. So Evangelist just tells him, well, follow the light, that piercing light that's coming out of that narrow passage. You might not be able to see the gates, but you can see the light. This is going to be extra hard for Christian Bale slash Rick because there's so many shiny, artificially lit things in Los Angeles. So how does he know what light to follow, man? Yeah. But also, he's it's a try. Terrence Malick film, so I mean, half the time you're just looking at the sun with that crazy starburst lens flare thing going on. Yeah. So. so he's also underneath the sun. So there's just light everywhere in a city of sunlight and then neon lit pavements at night. How in the world are you supposed to find the light coming from the wicked pass? But he's gonna try, and along the way further. Pilgrim Christian will encounter other characters like Obstinate and Pliable, who tell him, don't go, don't leave home, stay here. And Christian's like, nah, I gotta do it though. <laughs> and so Pliable, he's what you might call Pliable, and so he decides to go with him. <laughs> and they're traveling together and they come across the slog or slough of despond. And I think of the slog, slough, slew of despond as basically the bog from Never Ending Story. It's like the pit of despair. Oh, uh, 
<laughs> no, Where come Atreo on. loses his little horse, Artax. London, I know uh, you and... like to hurt me, but please, you know that's too far, man. The horse never-ending story is a bridge too far. Come on now. Yeah, we'll have to do never-ending story at some point, because that is an amazing masterwork of just depressing German nihilism. Don't get but into the sand. Yeah, uh, yeah, they come across this like bog and it is the pit where all sin and temptation and horror of terrestrial worlds reside and they get stuck in there. They get stuck until a character named Help comes along to well, help them. <laughs> Pliable, this isn't enough for was, uh, Pliable. He's like I'm I'm out. I'm going back home. Was John Bunyan known for his subtlety? Uh. Yeah, that's what I said. It's a subtle art, man. We, we like to say subtle, not subtle on this, but this is the ultimate. This is the apex of subtle, not subtle. So he gets out of the bog and pliable. He goes back home because he's only so pliable, right? Things are pliable, but they're still breakable. And he just broke. So he's got to go. Christian continues on. He'll come across the Mr. Worldly Wiseman character. He lives a life of secular ethics, and he tries to poke at Christian say, come and do things my way instead. I will argue in a little bit that perhaps we can look at Antonio Banderas' character as the Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Actually, there's a lot of things that you can do. One thing I'm not going to do is completely map the Pilgrim's Progress onto every little scene that comes up. Oh, for sure. Probably can be done. Not what this podcast is about, but you're, I'm just going to give you enough to show that this is a remake, a modern retelling of the Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think that it could be exactly mapped on because I get the sense that this is a modern retelling of the broader themes in Pilgrim's Progress, but that Terrence Malick was not sitting there with his copy of Pilgrim's Progress being like, okay, now we, we need to get pliable in here because that's the next step, right? It doesn't necessarily operate verbatim in that way. But there are certainly themes that are getting drawn out. And some of these characters, so we're also going to get Vanity Fair later, is not a character, but a place. It's a playground of lust. So oh. we get a lot of Vanity Fairs here, but perhaps mostly the strip club that he's going to come to later. And characters like Formality and Hypocrisy, who prove to be false Christians among our character Christian, they're going to perish in places called the bypasses of the Hill of Difficulty. And there is also a dude named Ignorance and a false angel named Flatterer. So once again, subtle, not subtle. So yeah, I will point out as we go along some of the places that this, these little like themes come up from Pilgrim's Progress, but not gonna directly map. We have our main guy, Rick, played by Christian Bale, who's often hanging out by water. One of the first times we see him is out in the desert and he finds a stream in the desert uh, and sits by the water. And that is how the Knight of Cups is often portrayed on the tarot card that this film is named after. What the fuck is the Knight of Cups? What Not is true. the tarot deck? I'll broad stroke the tarot deck here a little bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> phrasing. Um, tarot decks, some people know them as fortune telling decks. I never like to use the terminology, but you know, whatever. Tarot deck, 78 cards. Two sections, the Major Arcana, which we'll talk more about in a little bit here, and the Minor Arcana. Minor Arcana are 56 cards, very similar to a normal playing deck. You have four suits of things and then numbers and face cards. You know, like with the playing cards, you have ace, you have spades, diamonds, clubs, hearts. In tarot, there are four suits, swords, pinnacles or coins, wands, and cups being the fourth one. They each kind of correspond to different aspects of the human experience. In the case of cups, refers to 
well, in short, love or emotions or kind of the non-tangible goods in our life, be that friendship, fellowship, our, our relationships with other people. And this is a movie about a man's relationships with lots of people, as we'll get to see. And in a suit, you kind of have this graduated scale from 8 to 10, showing the progress of that area of your life, and then the what are known as the court cards. Court cards are page, knight, queen, and king. In this case, we are talking about specifically the knight, also known as the prince of cups. Prince will be an important word in a little bit here. And for research on this, I consulted a few different books I have on the tarot. Um, one was uh, Eden Gray's book from 1970s. One was the book that came with the deck that I often use, the Dali Tarot Universal. Another was a book that London actually you gave me many years ago, the What the Fuck is Tarot <laughs> book. <laughs> uh, a big one I consulted, though, was a book called The Art of the Tarot, The Spiritual Guide by uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky from the 1990s. And I really like that because from that book, he will use examples of this is what the card can represent. This is what it rep represents in a reading. And if the card spoke, this is what it would say. So in short, for the Knight of Cups, because the Knight of the Cups is the only card from the minor arcana that we're going to talk about today. Every other card I bring up will be from the major arcana that we'll get to later on. But the Knight of Cups, like I said, cups represent love and happiness, often are closely associated with water. Each of the suits has an element they kind of play into. Water is what is related to cups, which will make sense because we're going to see this guy hang out by the water a whole lot. The Knight of Cups can often represent a romantic young man, someone who brings proposals and invitations. He is a dreamer of sensual delights. Again, we'll see a little bit of that as we go here. And from Jodorowsky's book, I do like this. He has this passage where he says, if the Knight of Cups could speak, here is what he would say. With an open hand, I am pursuing my symbol, the cup. I do not hold it in my fingers. It is guiding us, my horse and I floating in the air. It is an open cup from which a spring of love is emerging. It is the love that is my guide. I have no idea where I am going. I am following it without any doubt that it will lead me to my realization, which is the state of grace. Talent flows naturally. I do not force my will to find the right path. I do not employ my courage to leap beyond my limitations. All I do is obey. Whatever I receive, I give away. That's the Knight of Cups. And I think that's an apt description for our character in this film because we'll see he he's moving along, but uh, he's not forcing too much. And love and relationships are a big aspect of what this guy is going to be going through. It's true. It's also important to note that on the movie poster for Knight of Cups, the card is purposefully inverted. So it is an inverted Knight of Cups. Do you want to tell us how things change a little bit when you invert the Knight of Cups? Looking at the, the poster to this thing, it really doesn't even make me think of the Knight of Cups card because he's hanging upside down, which refers to the Hangman, which is a card that comes up in the, the title chapters for this movie, and also prominently displays the moon in the background, which is another card that comes up here. So the poster, one could look at it as an inverted Knight of Cups card, but I think one can also look at it as just an amalgamation of the different tarot cards that are going to be thematically incorporated throughout the film. Yeah, which is very cool. None of the original posters didn't have any of that. Instead, it had a 
picture of this one artist also from around the John Bunyan time that was a theosophy picture of the spiritual journey having to go through hell in order to reach a celestial place. I don't have that off the top of my head. I just kind of vaguely remember that OG poster that was sort of a tree artistry uh, thing. Yeah, but fucking I tool. do like, yeah, this amalgamation, but a lot of people do see this film of the Knight of Cups and think of it as an inverted card. So one way or the other, if you want to invert your cards or not, we do have this dude who is on a bit of a love emotional mm-hmm. journey Definitely water-based, but he may or may not be having a shallow, in-earnest time of it, depending on whether or not you reverse that card. The reversals of many cards often have negative connotations, so it's a way of saying, like, this, you might be having a bad time here. And, yeah, that fits quite well here. I mean, you can definitely see this guy as a dreamer of dreams who wishes to reconcile the loves of his life and the relationships that he's had, but he's having a tough time of it. So yeah, you could see it that way. But like I said earlier, the, the knight of any suit of cards in the tarot can also be referred to as the prince, the prince, the knight, the traveler, even the pilgrim, if you like, kind of tied it all uh, back together here. And after we have met him a little bit, and as he walks around, we do begin to get this voiceover from his father, a man named Joseph, played by Brian Dennehy, that we'll meet later on. And we have a story about a prince that I will play now. This is a two-minute clip, so, you know, buckle in. Remember the story I used to tell you when you were a boy? About a young prince. A knight. A knight, you say. Sent by his father, the king of the east west into Egypt to find a pearl. A pearl from the depths of the sea. But when the prince arrived, The people poured him a cup that took away his memory. A cup? He forgot he was the son (laughs) of the king. Forgot about the pearl. Slept on. 
You know, I'm beginning to see what you meant by this film could be an hour and a half shorter. I was just going to say, I was like, this is a great example of how we could we could just compress some stuff, you know, great sound mixing going on in the background. But come on, like that is five sentences and it took two minutes. Come on, Brian so, Dennehy, let's move it along. Come on, buddy. That is also why you need to be in the right meditative mindset for this film. But this is a lot of stuff packed into these two minutes, even though they were extended longer than they needed to be. Because as you pointed out as we went along, we have that night stuff going on. We have the cups thing going on. We also have the hymn of the pearl going on. And we do have an allusion to Pilgrim's Progress in there as well. So we have three major themes, Mm -hmm. all of our three major themes happening in this one little monologue here. So this pearl business, because, yeah, we have the voiceover where he is a knight, a prince, a son of kings who got sent into Egypt to find a pearl, a pearl from the depths of the sea. And that when he got there, he forgot himself and he got lost there for a little while. And it's, it's insinuated later on that this character might be from the Midwest and then headed west to California, so maybe California is Egypt here, what have you. As this voiceover is happening, we see Rick in his car driving around with some young gals, goes to a party, gets shit-faced drunk, and is just passed out. So, yeah, story of the prince who came from the east to figure things out, and oopsie-daisy, got passed out drunk. What you gonna do? Yes, I do like that idea of the west of L.A. slash Egypt getting overlaid here because the story of the pearl, the hymn of the pearl to be specific, also known as the hymn of the soul or hymn of the robe of glory or hymn of Judas Thomas the apostle, is a passage that is found in something called the Acts of Thomas. And most people believe that the hymn of the pearl does predate the Acts of Thomas, that it is a hymn from maybe the first or second century that this writer of the Acts of Thomas is going to put into his larger writing. And it is found in the Acts of Thomas when Thomas, within the Acts, sings the hymn while praying for himself and some fellow prisoners. Because guess what? Thomas, this apostle, is also imprisoned for heresy and conviction of sin and stuff like that. Kind of like John Bunyan was, unrelatedly, but also now relationally, because we're bringing these two stories together into the same narrative. So we have a lot of themes here of people who are really searching for some sort of larger spiritual or faith structure, but don't want to do it in an orthodox way. Uh, The Acts of the Apostle or Acts of Thomas are also considered a work of heresy from Orthodox church stuff. It is not an accepted act, as far as I know, in Orthodox religion. But inside of this heretical text that contains the hymn of the pearl, the pearl is a story of a young boy, the son of the king of kings. He is a prince who is sent to Egypt to retrieve a pearl from a serpent. Because the serpent, he has this pearl, and the king wants it. So he sends his son. And during this quest, he is seduced by all of the things that the West has to offer. And he forgets his origins and his family, just like we heard in the voiceover. However, at some point, his king sends him a letter to remind him of his past. And all of these memories come rushing back. 
once the boy receives this letter and he remembers oh. his mission and he goes and he retrieves the pearl and he returns. So a lot of it is this big battle with the sea serpent for the pearl. Note, it's not really a sequence of messengers or guides like the voiceover in this movie tells us. Because those guides, those guides actually come from Pilgrim's Progress. So that's where Pilgrim's Progress is coming oh, in, oh, is that oh, John Bunyan slash Christian okay. is going to have a bunch of guides to help him. This kid just gets a letter. Other things that are curious about the hymn in terms of its interpretations is that the Thomas Acts do strongly imply that this Thomas cat is the brother to Jesus Christ. Oh, that that Thomas. Okay. Yeah. yeah so we've got little Jesus out there who's never referenced by name in the <laughs> Acts of Thomas or the Hymn of the Pearl, just that he is next in line to his elder brother and that also he is the twin, the identical twin of this person who is next in line for this kingdom. Okay. Once again, this is like one of the reasons why this work is heresy for yeah. Orthodox Christianity. I don't know. I'm not an Orthodox Christian. I'm not Christian anything. So I and you said don't like know his, necessarily all the in and outs. But you said his dad was called the King of Kings, which is often a way, way that Christians refer to, you know, Lord, God, what have you. Yeah. So... Basically, Rick in this is Jesus's twin brother, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Because Thomas is our young boy who's getting sent off to find a pearl to the West. This pearl being wisdom, his soul, meaning. It's a very Gnostic text. So we're going to talk about Gnosticism in a little bit. But yeah, he's, he's searching for meaning in the West and he's forgotten who he is. And when we're getting this referenced in the movie, we have these images of Christian Bale at a party and he is blown out of his mind on booze and drugs and debauchery. It's actually one of my favorite shot scenes because there's this woman in all silver body paint with angel wings that's crouched or curled over in a certain way as this wide-angle lens just pushes in on her. There are lots of dudes in masks, one of those big horsehead rubber masks. There's another one that seems to be in a very meticulously hand-carved tribalish mask, and he's just passed out on the chair. So it's this assault of images and artificial light and yeah rick is clearly not thinking about much of anything he has lost himself he is stuck in this stupefied slumber forgetting that he needs to search for meaning and his soul and wisdom man but also if he is thomas in this narrative that makes him maybe jesus's slightly younger twin brother who both have the father of who joseph <laughs> <laughs> Ah, okay. All right. Subtle, not subtle. Subtle. Oh, Mr. Malik, you trickster, you. Oddly enough, Christian Bale, I mean, not here, but in that press conference I watched, uh, totally looks like he could have played Jesus because a few years after this mo- he filmed this movie, uh, during that press conference, like they filmed this movie and then it went through two years worth of editing and then debuted in 2015. And at that press conference, Christian Bale has, he's grown his hair out. His hair is much longer and he has a mustache and beard. And you think, wow, you have that like scraggly Jesus look to you right That like now, whitewashed man. Jesus vibe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like the, yes, the anglicized whitewashed Jesus, not the way Jesus would have actually, historical Jesus probably looked. So, yeah. 
So, yeah, so we've got this possible twin brother of Jesus partying on a rooftop looking for the pearl. And the pearl is what Gnostics call the spark or the known forgotten true origin. Because Gnosticism preaches that we are all spirits lost in a world of matter and have forgotten our true origins. And the state of affairs might be somehow ameliorated or enlightened by the deliverance of a message from a messenger. And some sects of Gnosticism ascribe this to a Jesus-like figure, and others say that uh, Jesus himself was kind of a false prophet of sorts. So I'll put a pin in that because there's a different time we'll talk about Gnosticism a little bit more. But yeah, right now he's searching for meaning. You thought we'd only discussed the Gnosticism the one time. Oh, no. you, you are at the wrong podcast, I mean, this entire listener. thing is a Gnostic text, so we'll, we'll <laughs> sprinkle it throughout. So yeah, he's on a rooftop. He's gotten super blown out of his mind on drugs and alcohol. As you do. In the background, there is a really, really cool display animation artistry that's really cool. And you're like, this doesn't seem like it should be part of a Terrence Malick film. This is very different than Terrence Malick's usual stuff. I even saw a review of this film where the reviewer got all excited by this black and white image of this woman painting her face and moving in weird contorted manners. She's got this little cutout of her face on top of her actual face, and sometimes she puts it on the back of her head, and so it's all this disjarred movement. She moves through stop motion, even. There's no it's there's no fluid blur motion. It's just all static. Like Yeah, it's super cool. And this reviewer was like, wow, I didn't know Terrence Malick had it in him. And I'm like, that's because this is not Terrence Malick's work. I'm sure he just filmed an art installation somewhere. Yes, this is an art installation. It is by the noted London-based illustrator, animator, and fashion filmmaker, Quinton Jones, who is a woman who used to model. She's actually the woman in this video. This is a self-done little thing, and it's called Paint Test Number One. So you can actually look up Quinton Jones' Paint Test Number One and find the entire video sequence because it's much longer than what is in this film. But it is really cool work. She does a lot of stop-motion fashion animation marketing as well for a lot of very high luxury brands. She's very mm. cool. She's very talented. But yeah, this is awesome. not Terrence Malick's stuff. If it looks <laughs> out of place in a Terrence Malick film, it's because he did not film this. I don't know what could look out of place in this movie, but... Yeah. I mean, well, I, I saw this. I just thought, yeah, okay, also, fine. Let's let's do this for a little while. Emmanuel Lubinsky was told by... Uh, Terrence Malick to not read the script at all and instead to just go about filming this like it was a documentary. And so this was the first time that Emmanuel Lubinsky filmed a movie of which he had never read a script for and he was just on set. And Malick's like, just get some shots, man, get some shots. And occasionally Malick would point to him and say, shoot that. But for the most part, Emmanuel is just going around getting what he can. And uh, it is a very free flowing narrative. I don't even know how many hours of film footage they ended up with. Because I do know that, as you mentioned as well, this took a couple of years in post to edit back together and had multiple editors doing it. So (laughs) this is a collaborative effort. Christian Bale mentioned that there probably could have been three very distinctly different movies drawn from the footage they got. But this was what they ended up with. Uh, Speaking of Christian Bale, uh, he never saw a script himself, actually. Uh, We found this interview with him where he kind of elucidates a bit on the process. 
there was a script, but he really never paid any attention to it. Like, he was kind of, oh, let's get rid of that. You know, let's, let's just do this instead. And then gradually just coming to a point where he kind of says, well, you know, what do you think? And I mean, I should do something. I'll just give you kind of character description and then just, yeah, off you go, see what happens. So I'm like, great, let's try that. You know, it's fantastic. Getting away from all these kind of goal-oriented scenes where you've got to finish, you've got to get to a certain point instead of just, well, let's just see what happens. So it wasn't a big surprise to me, you know. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I love Terry the Bits, love conversations with him and um, just went, yeah, great, all right, you know, I want, I, want, I want to do that. He's on his own journey, as the character is, you know, about what he can do with film. You know, he certainly is inside. Look, I, th I think he could impeccably execute, you know, a, a more traditionally scripted film and with uh, different goals, but it just, it doesn't interest him right now. You know, he's like, he just can't bring himself to do that. He feels bored with it. And so as opposed to an awful lot of directors where you'll rehearse and kind of, oh, now we're really nailing it. Now we've got the perfect moment because that helps with the next scene. Terry he goes now you're in this prison you've like gotten a rut you know he wants you to start before you feel like you're ready you know he wants to have those accidents he wants to have those pauses and he's and he's genuine when he says look here you go uh, maybe you can say these lines maybe there's a couple of lines here that you know you work out your own version of it but if you don't feel like it forget it you've got to feel it and it'd be very often in that case you know and Rick's a character who's kind of a man of words who's lost the use of words yeah, I just didn't say anything. And they go, perfect, got it. We didn't need anything said anyway. You know, fantastic. Uh, yeah. What I noticed there, a phrase that I heard Christian Bale use a whole lot when describing the process was that Terrence Malick would, would often say, let's start before we're ready and see what happens. So instead of taking all the time to get the lights out, get the cameras out, set everything up just so perfectly, rehearse these lines, rehearse this line, rehearse this movement, they would just start and they would go and he would, Terrence Malcolm would just say, you're feeling this right now or this person is here and they have things to say. And apparently other actors had a script or had things that they would say to him. And Christian Bale claimed that he would try to sneak a peek at the pages that Kate Blanchett or Natalie Portman were getting uh, to see like, what the hell are they actually going to say to me right now? Because he really would have no idea going in what was going to be said. And a lot of Rick's thoughts would be built upon in the voiceover that he does a whole lot. I think Christian Bale said, Christian Bale and Natalie Portman both said they spent probably more days doing voiceover than they did actually filming the movie. Yeah, because probably didn't have a plot at the time at all. Rick, he's had a good time at that party, but he's got to nurse that hangover. And it's just a bad morning to nurse a hangover because guess what the fuck happens? Earthquake, because he's in Los Angeles and earthquakes happen there. He is in Los Angeles, and earthquakes do happen there. So the earth begins to rumble. Everything falls off of his shelves. He runs outside to check on the landscape. He's not going to wear any shoes as he runs out onto the Los Angeles streets. And uh, that makes me cringe every time. <laughs> really? You're not going to wear any shoes? Fine. There's whatever. in the streets but out there, man. Watch out. This earthquake thing, it's important because it sets up some apocalyptic shit. Oh. Because why? Because this is the Pilgrim's Progress. And so we begin our narrative in the city of destruction, which in this film is going to be definitively named as Los Angeles, is this city of destruction, this den of mortality and sin and lust and despair that Christian Bale slash Pilgrim Christian slash Rick will at some point want to try to break away from. 
And there is a reason why there is an earthquake here, and that's because there are a ton of earthquakes in Los Angeles. So it's a good setting for this little rumbling city of destruction on the verge of split ah, and okay. collapse. California has about 10,000 earthquakes every year. That's a few. They're generally small enough that they are not felt by the majority of the population. Oh. LA itself gets about 30 a day. And why LA gets about 30 earthquakes a day is that they are on the San Andreas Fault System, which is this really cool but slightly terrifying geologic boundary between the North American and the Pacific Teutonic Plates. So one plate is moving in one direction, the other one's moving in another, and it causes friction and it causes rumbling. I think this is why people always say that part of California is going to fall off the coast at some point or something like that. Yeah, which technically, so once upon a time, in theory, all of the land masses were connected in some way, which is kind of fun because they are little puzzle pieces that Mm -hmm. you can actually see how they all once fit together. So land does break apart. That's the thing. But the extent to which it's going to completely separate, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. of the probability, the theories, and the statistical likelihood of that. I did look up the statistical likelihood of major devastating earthquakes per year. So within the next 30 years, the probability in LA that an earthquake measuring a 6.7 will occur is 60% currently. Mm -hmm. I mean, these statistics are subject to change as the global environment changes. So these could get worse is what I'm saying. And uh, the... Earthquake measuring magnitude of 7 is a 46%, and 7.5 is a 31% chance. So people are just kind of living in L.A., waiting for the big one, as we <laughs> sometimes like to say. So that is the thing. You can just constantly be on the precipice of a The Rock-style San Andreas disaster movie <laughs> waiting to happen. And that is the city of destruction. As is his little quote of, you see the palm trees? You see the palm trees? They tell you anything's possible. You can be anything. Do anything. Start over. You don't. I love that other little dude in the background, too, where it's like, I know you outrank me, but... Can you just, I'm just asking you for permission to make this scene dramatic just once. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like this is an actual conversation that's happening in the background that was caught by Emmanuel Levinsky or something once. And it's like, turns back, it's like we're using it because it's these people that are really frustrated that these scenes are just aimless. But uh, yeah, the main quote here is about you do anything, trees. start over, you don't. Yeah. It's like, that's deep, Rick, deep. I gotta say, I do. I love palm trees. I love the aesthetic of palm trees. I do love the look that they lend to the Los Angeles skyline. There is a certain beautiful dreamlike quality to them. So we have his deep observation that people could start over here, but they don't because they're stuck in the cyclical pattern of destruction as they slowly slumber to the end. To end, not with a bang but a whimper or a whimper but a bang depending on if you're asking T.S. Eliot or Southland Tales because they invert those but one way or the other yeah the end is coming and it's either going to whimper out or it's going to bang out and Ricky is just stuck he's stuck here 
like his father before him was stuck here, wandering around empty backlots of studios. We get a little bit of meta-ness of the film industry because Rick is a screenwriter in Los Angeles, we learn. Well, in theory, he's paid to be a screenwriter. We're never going to see him write a single thing. Yeah. Apparently, he doesn't write that much because his little agents show up. They're like, you know that last thing that you were contracted to write and you didn't? Well, you don't have to do that anymore because we <laughs> told them that you needed more money. So you should really do this instead. So he's getting paid for the shallow delivery of not doing anything whatsoever. His life is meaningless and he gets paid for it. How do, how do I do that? Man, that sounds great. Right? I was like, this guy does not seem like the mind that would bring us really great blockbusters because they want him to write a blockbuster and this is supposed to be some sort of, once again, commentary on his meaninglessness. But I'm like, you're, you don't even seem like you could contribute that, honestly, dude. Like, you have not exhibited a single coherent thought. So but, get off your high horse a little bit, Mr. Like, I don't want to write the meaninglessness of blockbusters. I want to instead snort ketamine off of a silver-painted angel stripper at a high-rise loft party in Culver City or whatever. Yes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right that his, in addition to his little voiceover, you know, observations about how palm trees tell you that you can be anything, but you don't. His father also reminds him that you could be anything, but you aren't much like me. My son, you're just like I am. Can't figure your life out. Can't put the pieces together. Just like me. A pilgrim on this earth. A stranger. Fragments. Pieces. Of a man. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Yeah, I trimmed that one down a little bit. Sorry if the audio was jumping around a little bit, but after that last one that Brian Dennehy did, I'm like, okay, look, man, you've got 10 seconds of voiceover. You're stretching out to five minutes. Let's just, come on, pacing. Let's move, move, cues. Yeah, let's condense this shit down. But his father, too, before him was a pilgrim because we are all apparently but pilgrims on this earth on a progress towards meaningless. Wasn't his father the king that sent him out to what? We're condensing a lot of different stuff. <laughs> we have just the universal longevity of the Pilgrim's Progress. So his father and his father before him and his father before him. And at some point you travel back enough and you get John Bunyan, the OG Pilgrim on a progress quest. I don't know. There's just a lineage of sad men who do not know meaning, who are searching for that Gnostic truth and or their way into some sort of faith structure. And they're not going to find it because his dad apparently hasn't been trying too hard. He didn't go on his quest. He's just a pilgrim on this earth. He did not progress to that celestial city. He's static. He's stuck. And he's really grumpy about it. And because of that, he inexplicably hangs out on the top of dilapidated warehouses and buildings a lot. Christian Bale slash Rick is going to meet with his family members in the weirdest places. Like, they are always just congregating on the top of old buildings. And you're like, why? Why was this where you chose to meet? Don't one of you have houses? Just invite him over to the living room. But no, it got to be epic on top of these old buildings. Because cinema, aesthetics, that's what matters. <laughs> location, 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 you know. And uh, yeah, Rick, uh, I don't even know what the fuck Rick is doing at this point. He's around, he's sitting in the dark, watching TV, but he's not. He's kind of wondering where things went wrong. He's out in the desert again, by the mountains. He's going to wander, basically. He's just going to do his wandering thing. He's going to wander a little bit until we get our first chapter title card. 
Uh, I actually took notes on when these come up. So our first chapter card, The Moon, comes up about 11 minutes, 45 seconds into the film. So we've spent the first few minutes getting to know our guy, and now we get into our chapters. The Moon. That's right. All the setup has been for the first 11 minutes of the film. Oh, naturally, yes. The rest of the title cards will go a little quicker, yeah, because all the front-loading information is where it's at. This is true. So our first chapter is The Moon. The moon is the 18th card of the major arcana. Like I said earlier, there are two seconds to the tarot. Minor arcana, major arcana. Major arcana are kind of often referred to as event cards or chapter cards sometimes. They represent very big moments in one's life. Major arcana means like something major is going down here. In this case, the moon, the 18th card, is a card that's often associated with intuition, Cosmic mothers, dreams, receptivity. In his book, Jodorowsky says this about the moon. For a man, it is a prompt to cultivate traditionally feminine qualities like sensitivity, intuition, and so forth. The moon is a good omen for anyone wishing to devote himself to poetry, to tarot reading, to all disciplines based on receptivity. Equally resonant in the moon are fear of the dark nightmares and all sorts of worries linked to the unknown, sometimes without constraint. It can symbolize poorly defined anxieties, but also a voyage across the sea or arrival at a port. Its infinite receptive potential is its greatest treasure. So Rick, I can definitely see that working here because as we go along, Rick meets uh, a new lady, the woman who is swimming in this pool that we saw very briefly before the chapter card. And she is that uh, that kind of energy, that feminine cosmic mother energy. It almost, I feel like every woman in this movie almost has like manic pixie dream girl thing. They are here to just guide our protagonists along the way and like help them achieve something else. We're not really getting into what they are all about or what their journey is. But uh, I don't know, maybe that's just an aspect of Pilgrim's Progress where that original book, we're not really too concerned with what those side characters are all about. We're really just here to see what our main Christian guy is going for. Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. Mm -hmm. I definitely think part of it does feed into this Pilgrim's Progressness of the stock characters that are named exactly what their role is. And Mm -hmm. their role is generally one note. They are help or they are pliable or they are flatterer so they have their one thing that they are going to do because our poor little main protagonist he's a very simple man and he can only handle one non-complex emotion (laughs) or thought structure at a time so we do have that the manic pixie dream girl i definitely see where that is coming from as well in part because they do have a lot of a certain quirky freedom about them. They also don't even seem developed enough for that role (laughs) in some ways. So one of the other quotes that I found when looking at this, or people who had watched this movie and reviewed it and responded to it that I kind of found funny, was by an LA Times writer, Christopher Hawthorne, who said, Knight of Cups takes its name from a tarot card and its attitude toward women from late Kubrick. This is the kind of movie in which the male characters wear more clothing than you'd expect when they do things like playing tennis or swimming in the ocean, and the female ones wear less than you'd expect when doing things like standing on apartment terraces in the middle of Santa Monica. And that is what we are going to have with this, speaking of late Kubrick, right, that eyes wide shut is what he's actually referencing there, just this parade of naked female bodies. 
And this girl, at least we're going to get her face. A lot of mm -hmm. the women that are in this, we don't even get their faces. We get fragments of their bodies from Emmanuel Lubensky's camera work that'll yeah. be the shoulder and the torso or the legs and the ass standing on terraces in the middle of Santa Monica, yeah. just out there naked. And so they are this parade of nymphettes of sorts or little kind of Grecian nymphs slash guides that are all going to fulfill a very similar one note repetitive guidance role for Christian slash Rick slash Pilgrim Christian, all the Christians <laughs> by saying like, hey, Knight of Cups, you're looking for emotion. You're looking for a connection. You're looking through meaning through other people's cavities. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. All right. Other people's cups. Right? Ah, and that, uh, okay. that is what I am here to do is I am here to what this first character is going to tell him is that you're not looking for love. You're looking for a love experience. You're not looking for me specifically. You're looking for any woman who is going to put this spark, this Gnostic spark back in you to give you some sort of meaning in life. That and really makes sense because the one of the first things that he says to her, it's one of the few times that Rick says anything out loud in the movie that's not voiceover, but they meet, I guess it's a diner or something, and he says, where do you live? And she says, why do you want to know where I live? He says, I want to write you a letter. Amazing. I thought to myself, oh man, that's that's one of those pickup lines. It's like, can't fail, man. Works every time. Yeah, it does. Actually, <laughs> I would probably find that kind of intriguing in a weird, maybe red like, flag psychotic kind of way if some person at a diner or an art gallery, wherever they are, is like, hey, where do you live? I want to write you a letter. It's like, okay, psycho, what's up? Like, you, wait, you, you might own have an stamps? Interesting what the hell? How? Yeah. Her response is, what are you going to tell me in that letter? And he's like, I don't know. She said, maybe you shouldn't write it, you know? So oh. it's a fun little exchange. Because, like, here's the thing, right, about this particular movie. As we mentioned before, <laughs> the actors got no particular script on this daily sort of thing. He was, They were just thrown into scenes. Some of them would get these daily little scripts and Christian Bale would have no idea what was about to be said or come out of their mouths. It would just... So he was playing off of that a lot. And half of the time, he didn't necessarily know how to respond to the situation. So he just didn't say anything at all. And apparently Malik liked that and was like, yeah, okay, great. You know, keep, <laughs> uh, keep going. We got it. Moving on. And so... Knowing that, this exchange is really fun because this is apparently where the actors' minds went in their little improv in the scene. You meet a girl in an art gallery, and maybe this chick had a couple of note lines, but Christian Bale went in with nothing. So this is Christian Bale's improv here. <laughs> where do you live? I want to write you a letter. <laughs> Amazing, Psycho. Amazing. Oh. At some point, too, then as they keep going, she also is going to say the very first lines that are not voiceover or looped, but are directly in the scene, which is her just looking directly at him and saying, I think you're weak. She says this line, I think you're weak, so strangely, too, because they're on top of a rooftop, as most people are in this film, stands up and looks at him and says it so slowly. I, she points at her eyes, think, points at her brain you are weak or mimes like a weak motion with her hands or something like that. Like really driving it home. It's not necessarily the first line that's not voiceover because they do have a conversation 
earlier, but it's the first time the camera light really stops to look at someone saying something with purpose, as opposed to kind of dancing around people as they're having a mumbled conversation about letters and writing them or whatever the fuck. And it's pretty great because we've had a montage of them hooking up throughout Los Angeles. And this is the first direct words she says to him in some ways is, I think you're weak. And it's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming, but also great insight, girl, because he totally is. (laughs) So one uh, note on this Delia, Delilah, whatever character and Gnosticism, because one of the reasons people might be on rooftops all the time. It's because they're just trying to get higher to the sky, you know? Because here's the deal with gnosis slash knowledge slash Gnosticism. Basically, what Gnosticism is is just this idea that we are creatures that are no longer in the form that we should be in. And we are going to get a quote at some point, I think actually even a little bit earlier, I can't remember if it's Kingsley or if it's his father, if it's Joseph that's saying this to us, that at one point people had wings, that we were born with wings and then we fell into the water and that, but the soul lost its wings and fell to earth. There it took an earthly body and now while it lives in this body, no outward sign of wings can be seen. Yet the roots of its wings are still there, and the nature of these is to try to raise the earthbound soul into heaven. And so there's this idea that's introduced early in the film, this idea that humanity once had wings, and that then they fell to earth, and they've constantly been trying to get their way back up to the sky. This is a fundamentally Gnostic idea. It is a Gnostic idea that's actually carried over in the Hem of the Pearl. This is something that's actually mentioned when he's forgotten who he is and what he once was. And part of what he once was, was a heavenly sort of creature. And when we came crashing down, apparently, with our wings, we fell into the water, according to Gnosticism. And so that's another place in which the water becomes such a prevalent, heavy thing, that the water is this antithesis to the sky and to flight. And so it's a constant juxtaposition in a Gnostic narrative between the primordial ooze that crawled out of the water and is constantly trying to take flight. And Gnosticism's kind of cool in the way that its spiritual beliefs are driven by this idea of the divine spark within over any sort of faith structure or authoritative teachings. And so in Gnosticism, you have this distinction between what is deemed the unknowable God or the unknowable form of creation and the creator of the material universe. Okay. Because here's the thing. Apparently, the God, which Judeo-Christianity says is God, this creator of the material world, he's not the true God. Oh. He's a false God. Oh, and shit. And that the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that, that little serpent was onto something because that serpent was a messenger of the actual truer God that's above this material world God. And so... In that way, the serpent is actually a praised figure in Gnosticism for (laughs) granting this idea of Adam and Eve knowledge, because knowledge is the truest thing, this knowing, because it's Gnosticism, right? Knowing is what Gnosticism is seeking out or Gnostics are seeking out. So the Judeo-Christian God of the Old Testament, 
he's just kind of a dick that's trying to keep us imprisoned because he doesn't want us to know shit. And the actual shit to know, a little serpent, he's trying to help us out, right? And Eve is a rad chick in Gnosticism because she ate that apple and she got that knowledge. And so she is the closest thing to the divine that Gnostics ever had on Earth. And that's kind of cool in this narrative as well, because we have a film in which there's a very rocky relationship with this material godfather figure of the narrative, that Christian is constantly at odds with his father, that just sees him as a continuation of who he was once in life, and, you know, God making man in his image or whatever, that it's just a repeat cycle and meanwhile the women they might know stuff and so well rick he's seeking out gnostic insight from the love of women but he's doing it in all the wrong ways this is not the way according to our film to find true knowledge and fulfillment because he's maybe he's the inverted knight where he's just not quite doing it right or maybe there Mm. is just no way these women are possibly also just not Gnostic beings. They seem fulfilled, but they also seem like they're on their own Knight of Cup quests in and of themselves. But yeah, that's where all this like Gnostic stuff is coming in and getting blended in with the women and with the hem of the pearl and all sorts of stuff. Very Gnostic text. All right. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rick goes and gets his tarot card reading. Oh, there's tarot in this movie. Yeah, there's tarot again. Known? Yeah. We're just going back and forth between like the Bible and tarot. You know, it's uh-huh. a nice, it's a nice heretical blend all around. So what I like about this is because we have a film that is essentially taking from texts that are all quote unquote heretical in some fashion that are about ways of finding spiritual fulfillment in non-organized religion non-authoritative church ways and so it actually mm-hmm. works out really well that they're blending all this like kind of christian mythology and spirituality in with more pagan forms this is true i did notice that when he goes in for this tarot card reading one the woman who's given the reading doesn't speak english so she has someone translating for her also the cards that she's using are fucking huge i've never seen this before like they're like eight by tens or something that she's flipping over the table. Do we see which cards they pull? Are they the same cards that are in the movie? I can't we remember. We very briefly see some of the cards. And it is the Knight of Cups is there, as is the Hermit, the Hanged Man we see at one point. We do see the sun. The sun refers to kind of patriarchal strengths and relationships. So that will mean a whole lot for Rick, naturally. And after a little bit more walking around, we get our next chapter, The Hanged Man. After we spent about 11 minutes with the moon, and now we're getting into The Hanged Man, Arcanum number 12. The Hanged Man is a car that refers to self-surrender, to higher wisdom, uh, meditation, the gift of the self, sacrifice, and not choosing. It's basically a card that just kind of says, okay, we need to stop for a second and just observe and take in our surroundings and see what is going on. The hangman is literally that. It's not a man who's being hung from the neck, but rather it's often an image of a man being hung from his feet. His hands are clasped behind his back, but he is oddly in a state of rest and relaxation and just looking around at everything. And it's a card that kind of wants to let you know this is a time when you really need to stop, observe the world, see what's going on, I think, uh, what is it, uh, Jodorowsky has, oh yes, if the hanged man could speak, he would say, 
I have the sensation of eternally falling toward myself. I am looking for myself through the labyrinth of words. I am he who thinks and who is thought. I am not my feelings. I observe them from an intangible sphere where peace alone reigns. At an invited distance from the river of desires, I know only indifference. I am not my body, but the one who dwells inside it. To reach myself, I am a hunter who sacrifices himself. I find burning action in infinite non-action. Such a weird card to describe because it is basically the card of non-action, the card of looking at yourself from a third-person point of view, observing, not feeling, but merely thinking and taking in what is happening around you. And really, the the trick that I often had when I was looking through these and learning the and re-examining the meanings behind each card was trying to figure out, okay, how the hell does that relate to anything that is happening on screen in any way, shape, or form? And you can kind of see that with this next set of scenes because it is very much, I mean, Rick just in general is a, an observing individual who is not taking action, but more just being talked to or being talked at and allowing the events to unfold around him. So sometimes, I mean, I don't really think it's right to look at these chapter cards as this is what is happening in this scene, but more just building on the character of Rick as we move along. Yeah, it seems that they those title cards are allowing us to travel through different people or main concepts that are currently in his life that are perhaps his burdens or that he's turning to in his little progress quest that represent different components. And this does seem to be the vibe that he has with his brother, because this is all the section, whereas like the moon was this feminine intuition. It's introducing us into this idea that Rick is going to fuck his way through Los Angeles. He's going to be looking for that goddess of knowledge and that spark that's going to bring him back to life. And now we're going to get the section of the relationship that he has with his brother instead of with women. And his brother is a hot mess. As much as Rick <laughs> is a hot mess, his brother is nuts. And his brother is plastic bag American Beauty guy. Oh, fuck. That's where I saw that guy. <laughs> yeah, Wes Bentley. Plastic bag guy. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah, so he is no longer finding that American beauty in plastic bags. Instead, everything sucks. He's just the most (laughs) emo, emotive little dude. He's got a lot of anger issues. He's very tactile. He touches more things in this movie than anybody else will. He's constantly trying to punch even lightly. He keeps wanting to get Rick into a fight. Keeps trying to get him in little headlocks yeah, and stuff. Get him to wrestle. Yeah, he is trying to take out all of his rage and emotions, and he just wants to touch something. He also needs to feel that impact. So whereas Rick can't seem to conjure up any feeling whatsoever, he keeps feeling like he's dead inside. And the woman that he hooks up during or during the moon section with is going to note that In some ways, it's kind of like she's just fucking a corpse. She's like, you want me to bring you back to life, right? I see how you look at me. You want me to give you this love experience. You want me to bring you back to life. You want to feel something. But it's not me you're looking for, babe. Now, little Rick is continuing not to feel stuff where his brother just feels everything. Yeah. Well, not shut up. I mean, he's the character who says the most, like, out loud thus far. 
Yeah, usually in the background, they silence him out yeah. a little bit. Like, he's going, but the camera's not focusing on him whatsoever. I think it's uh, some point Rick in voiceover says about his brother, I loved my brother then. Hated him, too, for destroying everything I've been trying to do to build us back up after Billy died. Yeah, Billy died. So they had another brother. He's dead. Oh, Probably dude. committed suicide, it sounds like. Because it sounds like his brother had tried to commit suicide before, failed, and then did succeed. And if we remember <laughs> that because of the hem of the pearl and the Joseph deal, that if Rick is Jesus's slightly younger twin brother, maybe... Maybe that's who Billy is. Billy is the suicidal dead older brother that seemed to be way more sensitive than these two, that seemed to know things, that seemed to be their father's favorite, and he's escaped the mortal coil of this world. So, yeah, suicidal dead brother, a.k.a. Jesus, maybe. A.k.a. Jesus. And then, so now, the only thing to do after talking about the suicidal Jesus brother, or twin brother, whatever, we meet God now. Uh, Or... In any case, in this far as this movie is concerned, Rick's father, Brian Dennehy, and Malik chooses to present this character in some of the strangest ways ever. Some of these bits are legit fucked with my head a little bit here because we meet him in an old office building and he's just standing over a super dusty desk in this desolate office. It's like an office building that has been abandoned since the 1940s and that Brian Dennehy is just apparently hanging out in and also washing his hands in a basin of the reddest blood ever. Like, I wash my hands. You could think of, like, Pontius Pilate washing his hands of the, you know, Jesus on the cross. I mean, more connections to Jesus, this son of his who may have been killed off. But it's in his blood or whatever. It's crazy. Yeah, because what is the Judeo-Christian God but a curmudgeonly old white dude that is way past the prime of his power, washing his hands in the blood of the innocents from his high tower while his suicidal self-sacrificing son is like, I can't bear this world any longer. I'm out. Uh, Whoa. And we have this continuous voiceover from Joseph, the father of this group, and also some silent footage of him and Rick arguing. And it's just scene after scene and shot after shot of this. And the one thing that really fucked with my head that I couldn't wrap my mind around was that in one shot, we see Joseph on stage seemingly continuing this yelling fit that he's having, but he's on a stage and people are watching him and applauding as he's doing it. I don't know why, but that stood out to me and just made me think, wait a minute, what? What? Is this a performative space now? I mean, I know that like all these other shots and scenes are very abstract and they're not meant to be taken literal as is barely anything in this movie, obviously. But I, what else is that saying if now, instead of just these representative scenes that we're having throughout the sequence of Brian Dennehy, Joseph yelling at his sons and, you know, lamenting things, and now suddenly he's on stage being applauded by people as he's doing it. I don't know. I feel like there's something very intrinsic there, but I can't put my fucking hand on it or my fr- my finger on it. Uh, life is a performative space, okay? <laughs> but also... Oh, okay. Well, well moving on then. <laughs> I do kind of get the sense that since we have this very sidelined 
meta-narrative about a family that is involved in the film industry, that his father, when he's like, you're like me before you, that he might have been an actor in his past life, that this might be a remembrance, this might be one of his fragments shored against his ruins or whatever, that he's remembering a time where he's performed a lot throughout his life, but he hasn't actually found any spark or gnosis in the meaning to that performative existence, whether that's just all metaphorical or whether or not he was a actor in his younger mm. life. We do have a lot of just, you know, filmmaking going on on the sidelines of the actual physical plot. So. Yeah, makes sense. And then after this, this chapter of The Hanged Man ends and we move into The Hermit. We haven't really been with the hangman for too long. I did no take note of how much time we spend with each card. Typically, it's like 11, 12 minutes. The hanged man, we only spend about seven minutes with him before we move on to the hermit, the ninth card of the major arcana. The hermit represents wisdom offered. Very often, this card uh, pictures an old man holding a lantern, which contains a six-pointed star that can you know, have references to Judaism, if you like, many different ways of looking at that. And it, the key words associated with this represent are you know, often solitude, wisdom, letting go, therapy, crisis, experience, poverty, shedding light, uh, old age, walking backward, cold, receptive, ancient, silence. Kind of related to the hangman where it is, it's still a, a mindset of let's step back, let's observe. But now this is much more a way of lighting the way forward. Often that lantern is representative of lighting the way forward, lighting the world with knowledge that is there, but you must be in a serene state to accept it. The descriptions that uh, Joe Roski gives of this card is, this card often symbolizes a crisis that cannot be avoided, a profound change that needs to be confronted and accepted. It evokes the idea of a teacher, a therapist, or a guide. But in a crisis, there is an equal, equal possibility that the hermit will renew himself or die. He therefore also refers to poverty, solitude, and even decay and degeneration. He can seem to be he can be seen as a vagrant or even as an alcoholic who is hiding a quart of red wine in his lantern. So there's a lot going on there, and that actually I feel like does apply more directly to the scenes that we're about to get. Because in this sequence, after the chapter card of the Hermit comes up, we're now at a party. Or we're going to get to a party pretty soon. There's a, a little bit of Rick hanging out with some topless women in a hotel and getting trashed. You know, it's, it's what you do. It's how Rick does. It's more of those scenes that you kind of mentioned earlier where it seems like we're only seeing parts of women. Because the camera spent a lot of time lingering on these women's bodies. These two look like underwear models that are running around this hotel with Rick. Thank God, this guy's life is just hell, isn't it? Just, ah, absolute worse. But after that, we go to a part, this extravagant Hollywood party that is being hosted by a man named Tonio, played by Antonio Banderas. Again, that's why I don't really think that the names really mean all that much, because they clearly didn't try too hard with that name. Like, we got Antonio Banderas playing this guy. What do we call him? Antonio. Pick a syllable that's in his name and go with it. <laughs> Just go with it. But he is a man who is, seems to be offering a lot of advice or just, you know, words of wisdom to Rick. And the solitude really figures in there because Rick is at this party. Really, it doesn't seem like he's having too good of a time. Like, there are a lot of scenes here where he is looking very broody. And 
one of the bits of the behind the scenes footage of this movie that I found involved a lot of the shooting of this scene. And it's often just a lot of all the extras and all the people who are in this party jumping around like, yay, woo, woo, yay, conga line, let's do it. And then Christian Bale just has to walk around and like mope and like just look like meh. You're like, whoa, yeah. So sad. That's some emotional the solitude. The burden of his existence is so heavy. Yeah. This whole scene is crazy because you get people showing up and you're thinking, are they playing themselves here? What is going on? Because you see, uh, what's his face? Uh, Joseph Mangiello, blah, blah, blah. The guy from True Blood. Yeah. Yeah. Werewolf of True Blood. That guy. Uh, Thomas Lennon's in the background there. Blink and you'll miss it moment. But Fabio is there. Yep. (laughs) This is when you realize that Terrence Malick knows a lot of people. We already knew this, but it's one of those confirmation of Terrence Malick knows a lot of people. And a lot of his filmmaking is just inviting the people he knows (laughs) to come and hang out places so that he can have his camera crew going around and getting shots. That is essentially how Terrence Malick makes films. Yep. And I think there was later in the interview from Christian Bale where that quote came earlier about, I just didn't say anything. And he's like, okay, great, perfect, coming on. That interview does continue a little bit. And a part that amused me was when the interviewer followed up by saying, so you were filming another movie with Terrence around that same time. And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, technically I was there for three days and if you've ever done a Terrence Malick movie, you know that that could mean that you're not actually in it at all, or you could be the lead of the film. I don't know. We'll see when it comes out. And so he has no idea if he's actually going to appear in that film, or if maybe some of the footage from filming that film actually ended up in this film, or if it'll end up in a film five years from then. So it was all about the experience, the progress. What do I say? of filming with Terrence Malick, but you just, you can't put much stock in what is physically going to come of that. So yeah, yeah, I think people just showed up for a party and maybe they were given prompts. Maybe they were like, have a party because I just need a Hollywood party. And that's what's happening here is that he is lost young Rick among all of these shiny, vapid people that, well, we don't know that they're vapid. Maybe they have very deep interior lives. We don't know. But what is important here is that Rick seems to be at a gathering thrown by a man who has some opinions on the way that people should live their lives. He is quite the philosopher in his own way of saying, like, well, you know, sometimes you want strawberry, sometimes you like raspberry. He's talking about women, Uh basically. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just want to flavor them all. and. That's all all good, all okay. We should all take drugs to expand our consciousness. And this is one of those times where it does feel very much like the perhaps Mr. Worldly Wiseman of the Pilgrim's Progress, or Progress, where you have this guy who seems very slick and preaches that this could be the end of your quest right here. This is, could be how you're searching for meaning in a meaningless world, or you're searching for that gnosis. If you do what I do, I feel like I know, because that's going to happen in the Pilgrim's Progress a lot, is that our Christian character is going to come across different dudes that promise him different ways of finding that unleashing of the burden that he seeks, except for in the Progress, this Mr. Worldly, otherworldly wise men or whatever, worldly wise men, He's a secular false prophet. He's not really living a fulfilled, meaningful life. But he feels like he is. 
So good on him. You know, yeah. just really, that's all that matters. If you're happy, <laughs> that's fine. The party that we're at now, hosted by our guide, Tonio, comes to a crescendo after he jumps in the pool in front of everybody with everyone cheering. He invites them all to do the same thing. And as the night fades away, soon everyone else is gone. But Rick remains in the water again. That Knight of Cups just cannot get away from the water as he floats around and there. And there are those Gnostic fallen angels yep. that have forgotten their true form. They can't get out of the water either. <laughs> or the Darwinistic progenate that crawled out of the water and yeah so there's a lot of water-based stuff oh but the dog okay so there's oh, the this, dog there is a yeah, dog one but... sequence that is so great because this dog jumps into the water and we realize that this is something different than the party we're at and it's just these underwater shots of this poor dog trying to get a tennis ball that's slightly sinking in the water and he can't quite oh, get it every time so his little teeth are around it it just doesn't quite hold on, and he has to keep going back up for air. And it is the movie within the movie. This is pretty much the sum up 30 seconds of what the rest of the movie is trying to <laughs> grasp at. Like, this is the most successful segment in trying to get that point across. It's just this dog searching for that one thing to hold on to, and he can't quite make it. And it's so, not yeah. like a matter of the dog who chased the car and finally caught up with it. What does he do with it? The dog knows what he wants to do with the ball. He wants to chew on the ball. Just wants to get the ball. Life would be really good if he could just get the goddamn ball, but he can't. Yeah. Ugh. The core thesis statement of this entire film just slipped in here in the hermit segment. Yes. And at the end of this party segment we cut to black we get some voiceover from a woman named nancy who is played by kate blanchett and she is apparently a previous love of rick and this section of the film the his new, ex-wife his ex-wife yes and this new chapter is entitled judgment the 20th card of the major arcana and you think judgment represents, you know, judging, a moral judgment, which is kind of that. When you see the card in most representations of it in tarot, it seems to be referring to Judgment Day because it often shows the Archangel Gabriel in the clouds blowing his horn while people are springing up out of graves. So... Yeah, less of moral condemnation and more something big is going on here. Quotes about this uh, include, uh, let's see, let go of what has been. Say your goodbyes and make your peace with the past. You have made your choices in the past and now you are free to choose anew and decide which road you will take. Uh, Key words are call, birth, renaissance, consciousness, work, union, family, transcendence, emerging, music, prompting, you know, music definitely coming from the horn. But... It, uh, what I noticed was interesting was that there is a bit that Jodorowsky writes about here that relates this card to couples. And it says, for a couple, this card is urging them to undertake a shared task, a real or symbolic child, suggesting that the meaning of the male-female union is to produce a third element bathed in love and awareness. Judgment finally refers to the emergence of a desire, vocation, a call to some kind of order. That stuck out to me because... One of the few lucid lines that we have in this section between Nancy and Rick, his ex-wife, he asks her, are you sorry that we never had children? Because apparently they are married. 
never had children. They may have regretted that. And it seems like the issue for them is that their union, if we are taking this prompt from Jodorowsky about judgment, the issue of their union may have been that they never seemed to produce anything from it or nothing more came from them being together. And we get some lines from Nancy that it seems like Rick was just incapable of loving her or unable to be a true partner to her in whatever fashion was necessary. Nancy, we get through some other scenes, is a doctor who may work, probably works at a free clinic because she's often examining people who appear to be homeless and have just been suffering from medical neglect. So she probably has a very different mindset than Rick in term in big picture terms. Yeah, she also seems to work specifically with the burn unit or with a lot of patients who are suffering long-term recovery from burns. Mm -hmm. And most of the extras, as far as I understand, in these scenes were just actual burn victims. Yeah, and makes so sense. they gathered them up and it yeah, I feel like there's there's a metaphor there somewhere <laughs> in terms of working with burn victims in I don't know. Metaphors uh, in this film? What? Yeah, exactly. It's probably another progress, like hellfire, whatever situation. There's also a lot of, yeah, the homeless that are featured in this do become a thing in Pilgrim's Progress as well in terms of the people that are looked over or forgotten a lot within the city of destruction and also tends to be a popular trope within the Desert facing an ocean, L.A. vapid, but trying to find deep meaning in the vapidness of Los Angeles narratives that we get a plethora of. Is there's often this shallow confrontation of, look, L.A. has a lot of homeless people. We're not really going to do anything about it other than show <laughs> it to you in this way that seems deep, but uh, yeah. nothing can come of it. <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, it does seem to just be this, it does add to the tapestry of the city of destruction and these lost souls that don't really have a way out or a way to seek the quest, the pilgrim's quest towards the celestial city. And meanwhile, Christian could be, but he's not. Or Rick could be, but he's not. Instead, he's still seeking meaningful relationships with women. Couldn't find it with his wife. So he probably is not going to be able to find it with these women he doesn't even ask the name of. So it's sort of, he's just, he's our hopeless little knight of cups, man. He's looking for that emotional connection. <laughs> he's looking for that Gnostic spark. This is not the way. There's just some, again, like the rest of this movie, there are so many different scenes going on. Nancy at the clinic, uh, shots of them at an older home that they apparently had together. Then them on a beach. And what was interesting to me about this bit on the beach that stuck out to me that is actually, a lot of the movie is like this, where we clearly have two different types of video footage being shown to us. Most of the time it is from a obviously professional cinema camera, like an Ari Alexa or something like that, or a red camera. But then other times the footage is obviously from a GoPro, which Christian Bale has said uh, in interviews that there were days that Malik just gave him a GoPro. He's like, run around with this for a little bit, go swimming or dance around and just like point at yourself or point at them. Just let, let's, let's see what happens, which that's, you know, that seems in line with uh, what everything else was happening here. But what I noticed with the scene, the scenes of, Rick and Nancy on the beach, 
is that the the camera will be it'll be the cinema camera, the normal footage, and then it will cut to almost the an identical angle of them, but it's a GoPro. So we go from you know cinema footage, which is you know looks like classic film. It's made to look like film, like thirty five millimeter film from days of yore, that sort of thing. And then it will cut to something that's a much wider angle and it's overly sharp. It's kind of a strange way. Like the edges are all really sharp and the colors are, they feel too saturated and the contrast is different. And when I saw behind the scenes footage of these scenes being shot, I noticed that they're on the camera rigs, the cinema camera rigs at the top of the matte boxes, which the matte box is just a, it's a box that's in front of the lens that you know is open, but it's meant to block out sunlight from coming down, hitting the lens, and causing unwanted flares. But on the map box were GoPros, so that means that Terrence Malick mounted GoPros on his camera, and every now and then just chose, for whatever reason, to switch to the much worse footage in the same shot and scene. That's just interesting. I've never seen that before. <laughs> yeah, he does love his wide-angle lenses. That Holy wide shit, Wide angle, yeah. he loves the fisheye. I, I see that type of angle, and I just simultaneously associate that so heavily with Terrence Malick and Terry Gilliam. Those yeah. are the two that just abuse the wide-angle lens <laughs> like nobody's business. They fucking love it. It's just their thing. And, yeah, it's... It does create a distortion. I don't know if it's maybe also adding to just the disorienting, inebriated quality of our primary protagonist, Rick, character. Sad Rick, because sometimes when, yeah, you're a little bit out of it or you're a little bit in an altered state, the world does just look, right? It'll take on that drug lens of things... Yeah, don't have the edges that they should or what have you. But yeah, maybe he just really, he likes playing around. He's a pure cinema kind of dude. It's disorienting. It adds to just the disjarring nature of the narrative, I suppose. Maybe he just liked it. <laughs> it's weird, though. That That's great. It's cool, but it's weird. That is a great way to just to sum up the wilder choices in this film is just, uh, Malik just liked it. Yeah, she just likes that wide angle, you know? I don't know. I love things that are really over, like, highly contrasted. So, yeah, that's not my area. Well, weirdly, my initial area in filmmaking was cinematography, but then I ended up as an effects person. But if I was to go all out on cinematography, back when I was doing anything, like, everything was so hyper-contrasted because Mm -hmm. I fucking love those chiaroscuro things. So, yeah, in a hypothetical world, if I was doing all of this and be like, why is it so chiaroscuroed concentrated? Just because I like it. (laughs) That's that's all, you know. Why is this lit with neon lights? Because everything should be lit with neon lights. No deeper reason. I mean, if I ever did something in black and white, it'd be like just high-contrast black and white 60 millimeter film look, you know, maybe not, I don't do it on film, but I make it look like that in post. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'd be a sucker for that. Sometimes aesthetics are what matters, right? We learned that from Catherine Hardwick. <laughs> aesthetics <laughs> matter above all else, especially when designing buildings. Just make it look good. By God. Yeah. Fuck structural integrity. Just make it pretty. Uh, yes. After we get, yeah, get a little bit more of Nancy's story, that we just said we find out like yeah she still loves Rick, but then she knows they can't be together, just not going to work out. And so we end that chapter 
with judgment and move on to our next chapter, 49 minutes into this film, The Tower, which The Tower is always a fascinating card to me because it's basically a card that says, you done did it wrong, do it again, or something along those lines. Uh, Terms of this can be like overthrow of selfish ambition, the emergence of what was imprisoned. Depictions of the card are very often this very tall stone building that is being struck by lightning and some people are falling out of it. So that can be a really weird card for a lot of people. A lot of people associate this with like the story of the Tower of Babel from the Bible, which many interpretations of that are often God saying like, no, I didn't put you on earth to build a giant tower. You're supposed to go and farm things and be out there. The story of Babel is like fucked up, too, especially like the opening dialogue quotes of the story of Babel. Basically, in its Cliff Notes, Spark Notes version, is the Judeo Christian gods decided like he didn't want people to be able to communicate with each other anymore. So he took away their ability to communicate. And when they tried to build that tower to unite themselves, he's like, no, fuck you. You do not get yeah. to be up near me. I am breaking down this tower so that you stay the lowly creatures crawling on the ground like I made you. It's like, Jesus Christ. Wow. <laughs> no, okay. but it I guess, on the, the Jesus Christ angle. This is like why I was like, Judeo-Christianity is fucked. But, it, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Often this card means to symbolize that we have spent a lot of time building up something, but that thing is the wrong thing. And that thing must be destroyed so that we can rebuild and try and do it right. From Eden Gray, from her book on terror from the 1970s, she says of the tower, This is the tower of ambition built on false premises. It is made of the bricks of the wrong use of personal will. Here we see the cosmic consciousness struggling to break through man's thoughts of material ambition and bring them to naught in order that he may build again. When man sells his soul to the devil and uses his occult knowledge for evil ends, then destructions descend upon him from above. Main theme of this card. Yeah, it's so strange. Definitely strange. And as you said, the story of Babel is, wow, it's a weird story, like... Assuming, like, if you take a secular point of view on it and you just say, okay, this was something that someone else written as a more morality tale, but why that? Why is that a morality tale that someone thousands of years ago wanted to write out? Really weird. Let's say if you go with the Gnostic uh, view of things, it's like, God, this... This material world god, he's kind of a dick. Yeah. This can't be all there is. And so the Gnostics are like, there's got to be something more than this asshole that's trying to keep us down all the time, you know? Uh, yeah, kind of wild. But throughout this, so this chapter is, I could see that. I could see that notion being applied to this chapter of the film. Rick is hanging out with agents who are, it's really weird, these two agents who say their life is like, our lives are just like Call of Duty, man. The agents in this movie, they're weird. Most of the time when you have Hollywood agents depicted in films, it's not favorably, you know. There aren't many movies I can think of that, like, really praise agents so (laughs) i think very often these are being done by creatives who have just not had a good time with their agents or their management it's a whole thing the fun thing though is is that 
within these buildings that Rick keeps going to, he will run into a lot of real life agents and publicists oh. that are doing cameos on Terrence Malick's behalf. Of course. So Why am I not shocked? Yeah, they're recognizable faces within the industry, but outside of the industry, they're not recognizable faces. Oh, so yeah. it can be weird where it's like, why is this camera lingering for a second on this woman who almost plows into him awkwardly while she's on her cell phone or tries to talk to this other guy and then veers? And it's because they're these little agents publicist cameos but yeah it does seem that this judgment followed by a high tower thing is that rick he went and saw his ex-wife who reminded him bitch you've been trying to find answers and pussy for years and it has not worked for you thus far so maybe you should do something else you find your love life very unfulfilling you find your career very unfulfilling and I don't know what it is that could possibly make you happy. You seem to be searching for something that is outside of the boundaries of human accessibility. So he's going to go about trying to do something different by not doing anything different. He goes back Just to keeps. his agents to talk to them. He's going to find a hot woman who he actually already saw once before at Tonio's party named Helen. And Helen is a model and also... Clearly an allusion to Helen of Troy as the most beautiful woman uh, for whom men in Greco-Roman mythological times launched a thousand wars just to fight over her face, basically, because it's just so pretty. And she meets up with him and... Once again, inexplicably, he just gets laid a lot by doing nothing. He just lurks around. He slowly hunches over, and women are like, sure, let's do this. It really <laughs> Whatever is. Whatever works for you, girl. It's so easy to take the superficial stance of you look at this guy's life and you just think, you seem to be doing okay for yourself, man. I don't know what your existential crisis or your search for truth is all about. You seem to be okay. Yeah, but that's not what he's looking for, you know? Yeah. That's not that Gnostic spark. But... For a little while, he's almost going to forget about that search because he gets waylaid by Helen and her pretty face. And she says very similar things that Delia slash Delilah does in the moon chapter, oh. which is basically this idea of I can see you and what you're trying to do. And what you're trying to do is use me for something that is greater than me or you and... I don't think you're going to find it here. There's a lot of just self-aware for as shallow and one note as these women are. They also just don't seem to be very attached to Rick. They kind of see what he's about pretty quickly. Like, all right, I'll fuck you, but I don't want to know you because I can tell that this is a red flag situation. And one of the lines that she does use, this is a paraphrase, but something about this idea that he wants to live with her in a dream and dreams are nice, but you can't live in them, right? Uh, that This yeah. has been a dream and dreams are nice, but you can't live in them. And that is, once again, reminding us that this whole Pilgrim's Progress thing, it is a dream overall, right? We, we started that out pretty clear in the John Bunyan text version that here is a dream that's going to be narrated about Christian's little quest. But there's also a sort of dream within a dream that happens within Pilgrim's Progress because they come across the enchanted lands. And in that, that is a field that kind of also reminds me of the poppy field from The Wizard of Oz, that there's something in the air that just makes you go to sleep and forget everything, forget what you're about, and you just go to sleep. 
I wonder if one could map the Pilgrim's progress onto Wizard of Oz. Oh, geez. <laughs> Side journey challenge for somebody out there with free time. But the threat that's very close to the Celestial City are these lands that you have to make it through that are just lulling you into a sleepful, dreamful state. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim Christian, he is going to fall asleep for a little while, and it's really, really hard to wake him up. But Hope is going to come and help him, mm. or instill hope in him once again, and they're going to continue on. But yeah, we have this like reference here of he is perhaps in these enchanted lands here with her, that he wants to slip into that slumber. He wants to slip back into that dream. And it's an even deeper dream than the dream that we were already told our King of Kings son on his little pearl Gnostic quest has already slipped into out in his Western debauchery landscape of forgetting who he is. So he's already forgotten who he is. He already lives in the West and now he's falling deeper into that slumber status. And then, yeah, he, he needs to wake up. He needs to continue on his journey, right? He can't stay here caught in this repeat cycle of fucking pretty women <laughs> and nothing else <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, that happens. Rick uh, leaves Helen, goes to meet his brother again. We get some more voiceover from their dad, and it's re really reiterating here that things did not go well. Uh, they did not have a good family life. Whatever that family life may have been, it's a little vague, but suffice to say, something, no, some things went wrong. Rick has done things wrong. I think, again, why this might be tied into the tarot or to the tower is we're meant to get this idea that Rick has been building his life in the wrong direction for a very long time, and something drastic needs to happen. Really, when you get the Tower card in a reading of Tarot, it's it's an intense card. I mean, some people think that like the Death card is like the scary card. No, not so much. The Death card, we'll get to it later on, because that's a chapter here too, but that's more about rebirth and changing things for the better and all that. Tarot is basically saying not only do things need to change, but you really need to accept that you did you went in the wrong direction for a very long time, and you need to stop that. Yeah, so how he's going to try to go forth from here, once he wakes up from his enchanted slumber with the super hot, war-defying face model, he's going to go fuck a stripper. <laughs> I just love the term. I love the idea of a face model. Like one of those models, you know, they got a... I got a face or whatever. Well, there are hand models out there. There are foot models out there. And there are models that are all about the body. She's just got a great face. Face that launched a thousand ships. We won't dwell on the scene, but like I do love that photo shoot just because of the weird-ass directions that Helen and other models are getting. The best one of which is, you're like a 1975 housewife who takes steroids and fucks girls during the day. And you like it, yeah. So give us that look. Like, what? What is that look? <laughs> You know, that really standard look yeah. about a serial fucking 1975 housewife. Cha, yeah, definitely. Obvi. And, yeah. So fucking strippers. He's fucking strippers. Ghost. <laughs> Which, this is the Vanity Fair portion of the oh, Pilgrim's okay. Progress, as it were, where they come to a area in which, yeah, all lust... And sin and debauchery is really put on display. Yeah. Because, you know, that hasn't been put on display up until now, so... Which is... This is the... Okay, so, yeah, we talk about debauchery and display, Vanity Fair, related to the 
the Pilgrim's Progress, this next chapter is called The High Priestess. Now, a thing about the High Priestess card is that it means there are many things it can relate to to this chapter, but one of them is not lust. The High Priestess is exactly that, a priestess. She is virginal. Many books in the tarot will describe her as free of the impurity of sin or lust or anything. And we are not getting that here. So it really is a take what you want to from this card. The High Priestess is the second card in the tarot. Uh, It represents hidden influences, gestation, accumulation, inner voice. Uh, The High Priestess is the ultimate interior into the mysteries, embodying the, the ancient knowing that lives within us all. Salvador Dali in the the book on his tarot deck. I don't know that Salvador Dali himself wrote this stuff, but it's in the book about his tarot deck that I found interesting. It says, The high priestess encourages you to develop the power of your own soul and your own inner perception in order to mediate between piety and frivolity, nun-like devotion and cat-like instincts. These scripts of your life should be unrolled and evolved. So essentially, the high priestess is a figure of knowledge, Someone who lets you see the truth in the world and gets you there. And that kind of applies to this character, Karen, that we now meet. Karen is a stripper that Rick meets with some other dude at a nightclub. And after they hang out, she mentions how she took drugs once, which I just thought, once? Okay, all right, cool. Just the one time. The one That's time. All she needed. But that opened her to the window of truth. Whatever that truth may be, she is there for Rick to help him see that too. Again, this is when I was watching this, I thought to myself, eh, there's some manic pixie dream girl action here. But at the same time, as you said at the top, these characters really don't even get that much development. They don't get enough development to be a manic pixie dream girl because at least they have an arc. These are just archetypes, as you said. Yeah, this is his version of hope, I guess. <laughs> okay. Or something. He's. This is probably one of. This actually might even be the flatterer, the the false angel, perhaps. Oh, so okay. That's the thing is that these are abstract, vague enough tropes that you could probably pick and choose what you wanted from the Pilgrim's Progress to overlay on it. But basically, this is just another guide that our sad Rick is coming across on his quest. That is trying to point him the way towards some sort of unburdening salvation. And her answer is the liberation of being whoever you want to be. That's what she does daily. She puts on a wig. She puts on a different costume. She can be whoever she wants. And also, she knows the truth because she took drugs one time. (laughs) And this is kind of, yeah, like the High Priestess card is a what's up Gnosticism type of card because that is the woman that has perhaps eaten from the tree, the one true person who has had the closest glimpse to the one true God of all knowledge. Karen seems like she might not necessarily have all of the answers, but she thinks she does because the drugs showed her the way once. Look, fake that's it, cool for her. You, you gotta know, fake it till you make again, it sometimes. Like Tonio, she's satisfied where she's at, so <laughs> that's great. It's good for Karen. But yeah, Karen is Karen's cool. Karen's fine. She's yet another interchangeable <laughs> guide on this road. He's doing a lot of things in cyclical patterns. This is getting into why I said at the top, like this movie could have been done in 40 minutes. (laughs) It could have been done in 20. It could have been done in 30 seconds if we just did the dog in the pool trying to get the ball, which is really what this entire movie is about. (laughs) 
<laughs> so there are various edits that will get you the same thing. Mr. Malik, those are our notes. Like, you really just need to film just that need dog. Just the dog the ball. Point taken, sir. We get it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, but basically she is once again this affirmation through this repetition. We get it hammered into us that it is this repeat burdenous cycle towards trying to find something else. It's really hard to break out of those patterns. So I guess you need the repetition to say that, but you got to be in the right mood to receive that message. Mm -hmm. This coincidentally was actually a common complaint of the Pilgrim's Progress when it came out by people who were of particular faith structures, they didn't like how long it took this pilgrim Christian to get the burden off his back. They were like, oh, this takes forever. Like, why did it not come sooner for him? And there are other scholars and lecturers who have discussed how the Pilgrim's Progress is very much an allegorical autobiography of John Bunyan and his progress mm through his own sort of conversion and finding a specific faith structure and that his progress was a very long one. It was not a quick conversion. And so that it, this is not how everybody converts or finds the way to whatever satisfies them in life, but it is the path that Bunyan himself did take. And mm. so this is perhaps a cyclical inability to break out this prolonged burden this is just Rick's narrative, but that doesn't make it any less tedious in points to be like, we're doing this again. Can't we just like change up the woman a little bit? Because all of these <laughs> women are very similar. Yeah, they're, they're a bunch of young, pretty, skinny women, you know, <laughs> helping him find the way. Yeah. yeah. Or not failing to help him find the way. I will say, I mean, Karen definitely seems to have her shit together or at least knows what she's doing because she's just having a grand old time. She pops around with the sugar daddy that she has who is happy for her and Rick to come hang out at his palatial Vegas mansion place. She, you know, knows the pimps around town and they're all cool. One of them is very religious and talks about God as pimps will do. That's how it goes. There's an Elvis impersonator. He doesn't really contribute anything, but he's there and Elvis and Preacher Pimps. Elvis what this movie was missing up until this point. Elvis, Preacher Pimps, you know, amenable sugar daddies. There it's Karen knows some good people, is my point. Maybe she does. Maybe she did get like an eye on the truth. Yeah, all these women seem like they have their shit together in their own way. They're they're fine. (laughs) They're not on a quest. Maybe they don't need to be on a quest. It's really only Rick who's super sad and needs to find meaning. And maybe that's not because he's some sort of special enlightened asshole that realizes that he needs enlightenment. Maybe he's just sad. Uh, Speaking of sad, Natalie Portman. Yeah, she's pretty sad, too, actually. Because Natalie Portman is in this last uh, chapter and she's sad. Yeah. Well, you know, this last chapter, this penultimate chapter of the movie, it sets up like what a fun time it's going to be when it just says death. Yeah. Yes, death is a card in the tarot. It is sometimes it's not even called death. It is sometimes just referred to as Arcanum 13 or the nameless Arcanum. But yes, it is death. And this is I think I said this. Oh yeah, well we talked about the astrologer. I complained about the complete basic bitch tarot moment in that movie where a tarot reader puts out the death card and she says, oh, there is a risk of death. Okay. Anyone who has studied the tarot for more than five fucking minutes knows that it's not actual death. It is not 
physical death. What the death card refers to can be change, can be renewal, it can be profound transformation, and it can be revolution. It is a time when things are really getting shooken up for you. To quote uh, Eden Gray, she says, This card is a suggestion to change old concepts for new, petty prejudices, ambition, and opinions gradually die. The change from the personal of the universal view is so radical that the mystics often compare it to death. So it's like death, but it is not physical death. To be fair, the astrologer does make it very clear that he is an astrologer, not a tarot card reader. God damn it, Jim. I'm an astrologist, not a tarot card reader. Come on, there's a huge difference. So, Uh, yes, we have the death card, and it represents change here. So something is going to change, maybe, for our pilgrim Christian slash Rick slash really sad Christian Bale, sad and silent Christian Bale. And what is going to change is he's going to start fucking a married woman. That's really the only difference between this woman and all the other women that he has been plowing through. They were either not married or he was already married to them. Yeah, I guess we don't know for sure that they weren't also married while they were getting with him. They just didn't say that in the narrative like they do for Natalie Portman's character. Oh, okay, yeah. They make it clear that she is cheating on her husband. This is not a polyamorous situation. This is not consensual non-monogamy. She's just stepping out behind her husband because it makes her feel alive, man. (sighs) I think a line from her voiceover is, I wasn't upset about the fact that I fell in love with you because it reminded me that I still could fall in love. You're like, God damn, because she is not that old. So yeah. how long has she been married to How long this have you been in this boring ass mayonnaise marriage, <laughs> Natalie? Gosh. Yeah. And also the poor guy. I feel really bad for her husband because uh, he has no idea. Yeah. The, also, yeah, loveless marriage, but also apparently one that is free of any useful communication because that's really something you should talk over with your husband, Natalie. God yeah. damn. But instead, I think she just likes having some on the side. And I suppose that's an option, too. That is a life choice out there for people. And Natalie Portman's character, she's going to grab hold of that life choice and fuck Christian Bale. What does Christian Bale and Natalie Portman do together besides fuck and go to modern art galleries? They go for walks, as you do when you're tired of modern art galleries and fucking. You go for walks. They go for a walk on a pier. and. Rick, he says, well, he doesn't say anything. He just kind of stands on the edge of the pier, looks at at, uh, Elizabeth, Natalie Portman's character, and just decides, you know what I'm going to do? Because I'm just a a crazy Knight of Cups kind of fella. I'm going to jump in this uh, the, the ocean from this pier. And he does. Seems to get a little pissed off that Elizabeth does not follow suit. She doesn't take that plunge with him because she's married and she actually doesn't want to be with Christian Bale full time. She likes having him as her side piece mistress. Yeah. So important things from this particular chapter. It is not the most engaging one per se because we've seen him fuck women before and her being married is not necessarily enough to shake it up. Her being Natalie Portman does sort of add something to it in the sea of faceless women. She does stand out because she's a known face. But at some point, Rick is going to develop some feelings for her in a way that he doesn't seem to previously have developed feelings for the other women. They 
end up in a voiceover revealing that she was pregnant at some point. It seems maybe like it was Rick's, but it's unclear if she had a miscarriage or an abortion. But either way, it's not resulting in a baby. Mm-hmm. And this makes everybody sad because we learned earlier from Christian Bale's first marriage to Kate Blanchett that no children resulted in that marriage. And that made them a little sad because it was a futile thing. Mm-hmm. That is not to say that marriages that don't have children are futile productions. This is just the way that they're feeling, and it's mostly because they're stuck in a state of Kierkegaardian existentialism where nothing's going to make them happy, but they do find reasons to say that they're not happy. Marriage! It's crotch dumplings or get the fuck out. That's basically what we're dealing with here. (laughs) Crotch dumplings? There's a term. Oh, yeah. This might be a time of sorts to bring up Kierkegaard, because that's a thing that's also a big textual influence on this entire work, as it were. It's been an influence up until now, but it's still an influence. So there's this dude named Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher, and he is a noted huge influence on Malik and his works. Terrence Malick, I think he actually has a background in philosophy himself in school. I meant to double check oh, that. Oh, most but likely. I did not. Yeah. So, and Kierkegaard is somebody he has talked about in interviews as being a big influence on his work. And Kierkegaard is most notable for being the father of existentialism, more or less. He is hilarious in his caustic, bitter ways. And a lot of what he had to say is that life is terrible and it's full of regret and nothing can make you happy. It's pretty much Kierkegaard in a nutshell. Although he also had this background thing in all of his works on the one thing that could maybe make you happy is a leap of faith turned to some sort of Christianity, but not the Christianity of the Orthodox Church, but some other alternative spiritual path, because he didn't really like Orthodox religion either. So once again, a theme that seems to be developing among all of the texts that Malik has chosen to explore. They're heavily Christian, but they're a slightly adjacent to any sort of organized form of Christianity that are going here. That's the case with the Hem of the Pearl, it's the case with the Pilgrim's Progress, and it is the case with Kierkegaard. So they were these weird Christian overtones. I don't know what Terrence Malick's religious affiliations are. Also meant to look that up and did not. But I don't know if this is just like a weird Christian movie for him mm-hmm. or if he always has Christian tones in his movies. But yeah, so Kierkegaard, a lot of what he had to say was actually on the concept of marriage. He has a whole work on the idea of love and whether or not love can ever be fulfilling in some Mm. way, which also seems to be a theme of this entire movie. Kierkegaard's answer was no, because here's the deal with Kierkegaard, is that he fell in love with a woman once upon a time, and they were engaged, and then he broke the engagement off because he realized in a fit of philosophical anxiety that to marry her would be to destroy the very things he loved about her, which was that he was not married to her. And so (laughs) it creates this cyclical clusterfuck of 
this because there was this growing idea. So Kierkegaard's going to write in the 1800s, and there's this growing idea at the time of passion and marital love, and this idea that perhaps you could have both. You could have the passion and be married at the same time. Kierkegaard's like, nah, that doesn't sound right. I don't believe you. This sounds like the old joke, I wouldn't want to go to a club that would have me as a member. Yeah, I mean, Kierkegaard, <laughs> he's he's a lot of fun on paper, but I don't think he would have been a lot of fun to hang out oh, with. Oh, fuck no. Because he Jesus. didn't have a lot of positive opinions on the world. Super fun read, though. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of his anxieties when it came to love was this idea that... If you marry, you will regret it because the passion will go away. But if you don't marry, you'll also regret it. Right? And that's pretty much for Kierkegaard across the board. If you do something, you'll regret it. But if you don't do something, you will also regret it. Oh, so uh, he was a blast is, at parties. <laughs> yeah, life is essentially just a burden of regret and misery and a search for some form of meaning. And yet knowing that the container of the world does not possibly provide those answers. He was also very big on laughter, the existentialist form of laughter, right? This it's so tragic that it's funny kind of idea that you can only laugh in the face of life because life is inherently tragic. He was heavily influenced by this concept of anxiety text that had recently come out prior to his writing and this new word that had been coined angst so oh, he is going to yeah. popularize the concept of angst because Kierkegaard is great so he's just a little emo angst ball that regrets everything <laughs> and he is also the one who's going to bring us the little adage of life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards well, and that fair. is essentially the Kierkegaardian paradox from which a lot of angst and regret arises, right? It's that the sad, tragic, hilarious state of life. And that's what we get in this movie as well as we see Christian Bale, Rick's life unfolding. It is in fragments, it's him reflecting back on everything that has happened to him and the sum, the summation of his life, his fragments that he has shored against his ruins, and he's understanding a little bit more of it in hindsight. But that's not so helpful because he's already lived that. He's already made those mistakes. He already has all those regrets. So there are a lot of really cool looks at this movie specifically in congruence with Kierkegaard's philosophy. That is, once again, another thing we won't fully break down, like The Pilgrim's Progress. That would be a very long podcast to fully go through, but there's lots of people who have done that out there. They definitely tend to see this as a very first and foremost Kierkegaardian work. But we will say here that the marriage stuff here seems to be very heavily, the, the most heavily Kierkegaard place mm. in terms of looking at this fact that he loves this woman or he sees in this woman potential salvation and meaning from his problems because he can't have her because she's already married. So he she can't be his wife. So there's this idea. Well, what if this is the one that would work for me? Chances are if he was to marry her. He'd have the same problems that he always had because that would not be a solution. Or if they had had this baby, would that have given him meaning or would he have continued along with this burden on his back Kierkegaard says he probably would be just as angsty and miserable because like his father that's been bitching this whole time he had kids and he found no meaning mm -hmm. and having Christian Bale and his <laughs> twin brother maybe Jesus and their little brother <laughs> extra emo American beauty bag boy so 
It, that does not provide meaning in life. Oh, I guess another thing with Kierkegaard, lots of stuff with Kierkegaard, is that his other big thing that he was known for is this text called Either Or, in which he breaks down two potential philosophical ways of living. And the first is written by the seducer, and the seducer's way of living is via aesthetics, that life is about hedonism and aesthetic pursuits and pleasures, and that that is all we can do to find meaning. And then the other part two of the text is that life is all about ethics and commitment in this more Christianly journey. And that also seems to be a heavy theme at play here throughout this entire film, right? Is this aesthetic life that Rick is being seduced into and whether or not he wants to explore another path to try to find meaning. So people find either or Kierkegaard's work in this movie a lot too. So stuff out there for you to explore further if you really like this movie and want some further reading. That is the suggested course. And you felt like London didn't do, you know, Kierkegaard justice. Oh, I did not. There's so much stuff with Kierkegaard <laughs> and I <laughs> it is too late in the cast and too late in the day to start really pontificating about Kierkegaardian philosophy. But if you want to hear why your life sucks and why it's never going to get any better, go pick up some Kierkegaard at your local bookstore. Or watch this movie, I guess, because, yeah, <laughs> death has happened. Literal death and whatever child failed to become produced from this union or the potential yep. love affair. Because they, they seem to break up because this is the last straw. He wants yes. stuff that she can't give him. They separate, and Rick, continuing his spiritual journey, we hear a little bit more voiceover from Joseph, his father, saying, like, son, I know that you have a soul. You have to find it. And Rick spends some time with his brother, walking around, staring at trains go by. And then a moment that was really trippy to me, because here's the thing about this film, is that it... it what is beautiful about this movie and why I think the connection to the tarot is very appropriate is that this movie is dealing in abstracts and it is leaving enough to the imagination that I think someone could watch this and find something of themselves in it. it someone in an existential crisis or someone with questions about their life can watch it. And that is essentially what the tarot is. I mean, each card deals in abstractions once you have those general concepts explained to you in a reading, you can find pieces of yourself in each card that is put down. So you're not dealing with specifics. You're just dealing with vague ideas that are relevant to you at, that, at any given time. And that was kind of where I was while watching this movie was like, yeah, I can kind of identify with a few vague things here. And then out of nowhere, Rick goes to St. Louis my hometown so suddenly i'm like why is he going to my hometown that is freaky that was just my experience the first time watching this movie i thought oh god that's way too close to home because that is home what the fuck well other people outside of you have come from st louis <laughs> this is true <laughs> it's bound to come up in a movie every now and again every now and again yes and it was interesting to suddenly see that because we get these shots of the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Uh, he's seeing them from across the Mississippi River, though, which implies he's traveling east to west. 
So he may be even from further east than St. Louis, for that matter. I don't really know. We have some shots like going around downtown. Someone really did go to St. Louis and ran around the city proper with a camera and got these shots, which was really fascinating. And it's the same kind of shots of children playing that we got at the very beginning of the movie. So it's somewhat implied this is Rick's childhood or his where he grew up. Yeah, this is probably his childhood. We do learn from him being our prince, son of kings, whatever, king of kings, son mm. from the hem of the pearl, that he came from the east and he moved out west. We mentioned that at the top. And he is trying to get to or back to the wicket gate. Wicket with a T, the narrow gate. So ah. perhaps they're like, where geographically in the world can we settle him in the east that has a narrow gate for him to pass through? And perhaps the arch in St. Louis just fit that bill. Uh, yes, that, I mean, that's often why people film in St. Louis for any reason is just get a shot of the arch because look at it. You know, besides that, St. Louis, I have to admit, cinematically is very unremarkable. So, Which is why it's amazing that White <laughs> Palace was set in St. Louis just so that they could film at a White Castle. <laughs> So that's something for later. Uh, that's a treasure for another time. That was our little James That's the Spader true spiritual experience. Reference right there. God, was that even St. Louis or was that East St. Louis? It's East St. Louis. Yeah. yeah that's great. Which is even Super more great. unremarkable than goddamn actual St. Louis. <laughs> oh, neither here nor there. But as we continue this journey and Rick is continuing to get some VO from his father trying to guide him along, we get the final chapter card of the movie. Freedom. Now you think to yourself, if you looked up the tarot, why, wait a minute, freedom is not a tarot card. Why are all these other chapters named after tarot cards and this one is not? Well, this isn't a tarot card. However, it is another name for a tarot card. The unnumbered tarot card, the Fool. The Fool is often considered the most important card in all of the tarot. It is unnumbered because the fool does not have a place in the numerological lineup of all the other major arcana cards. The fool just goes wherever he wants to because the fool is freedom. The fool is someone at the start of their journey. The pilgrim begin to set out, if you will. Terms for the fool are the choices offered, freedom, the great supply of energy. So the fool just represents unbound energy an absence of fear because the fool does not know what lays before him and thus has nothing to fear because he does not know what comes forward and thus cannot fear it. So that's kind of, I think, where we're saying that's where Rick, in a way, is ending. It's not that his problems are solved. It's just he's choosing to go forward without fear from here on out, which in a way yeah, is kind of what we get in this very last chapter here because we're getting a few other shots of the people that we've met so far, uh, there's a baby crawling around the deck because babies, you know, they happen. But he is now in a very meditative state, staring at the horizon a few times, standing outside at night, watching the stars. And as we fade to black, we hear Rick say, begin. And then we just have a few more shots of someone driving through a tunnel out towards the sun. And then the movie ends. Is there a more pretentious way to end a film than to have your protagonist whisper, begin? That is the question at hand here. If there is, Terrence Malick would know. 
Yeah, you do it in another one. Yeah, this whole final chapter, it's, I guess, wraps it up, but it lacks the pizzazz of any of the earlier chapters. It's not as interestingly shot. There's not as much interesting stuff going on. I suppose thematically that does tie it up. But there are some very heavy-handed moments of the card that says freedom. Mm -hmm. And it'll say this as it cuts to a barbed wire fence. (laughs) You're like, (laughs) okay, buddy. Then a little bit later, we have Christian Bale, our pilgrim, our pilgrim who's progressed all this way through modern iterations of the locations and the people from the Pilgrim's Progress, the text of John Bunyan. And he will also, along the way, have gained the origin story of the Hymn of the Pearl. And he will do this with a Kierkegaardian angst of existentialist bitterness and regret to come once again to the desert, to the side of the ocean, or he passes through that desert, I suppose, to reach the water and look up at the sky. Begin. Because his journey is just now beginning. And that's actually also something that does come from Pilgrim's Progress, is this idea that the journey actually does begin. It's a second journey once you reach that point of conversion. When the burden, you have to make that decision to unleash the burden, and then it's a whole nother journey struggle once you've quote unquote awakened to Mm -hmm. try to still find that place. He hasn't magically found meaning. He has just gotten, this is almost a rock bottom place you have to reach first. He's reached his little rock bottom at the bottom of this cliff here so that he can now truly begin the journey as an awakened man. I question whether or not he is, but <laughs> then again, I I am no pilgrim. I have made no progress. I, <laughs> I side with the either part of the Kierkegaardian either, or I am fine with an aesthetic existence. I find meaning in meaninglessness, and I'm all right with that. So fuck those wicked gates. But if our pilgrim, our Rick here, our sad, sad, angsty Christian Bale needs to find some sort of clarity and hope in the or part of Kierkegaard. He might as well give it a try, you know? Mm. So, yeah, that is, that's that whole thing. And also, side note, though, back in the death chapter, the one really important thing that comes oh, from yes. this is that there, there will be some foot play where oh God, Natalie Portman <laughs> does shove her feet into Christian Bale's mouth. There are a lot of people who are near and dear to me that are foot fetishists, and it was great when I said I was doing this movie. I think there were three different people that all they had seen from this movie was that one scene that has made the rounds among the websites out Mm -hmm. there, I guess, that collect various bare feet clips. So for those of you out there yeah, who want to know that that's there and you have not seen that yet, super important because it's, yeah, it's pretty great. It's a fun little moment and it just comes out of nowhere. It's just, it's a gift, you know? And then back around here to the Kierkegaardian angst. So we, get, we take the good with the bad. Yeah. We've got some fun little foot play in there. And then the horrid, dreaded, bitter angst of existentialist failed Gnosticism. Okay. So I found this quote. Because okay. this was actually what I thought was a, a nice little sum up of the movie itself. This is... 
This came from just a work by a guy named Trevor Loga, who is one of the people who wrote about Kierkegaard in Terence Malick's Knight of Cups. So okay. if you want to look up the rest of that and some Kierkegaard, but I liked the way that it started. And it was initially, Valdemir Nabokov writes in his autobiography, Speak Memory, I was unaware that time, so boundless at first blush, was a prison. Human consciousness seeks the infinite in the finite. It inevitably falls short. It always misses the mark. It is always unfulfilled. And even if fulfillment is found, death quickly slams the door shut. The unhappy consciousness clings like a shadow to every fleeting pleasure. After dizzying Dionysian dithyrams in Vanity Fair, we throw ourselves into various penumbral stoicisms or melancholy Gnosticisms, world-weary with promising pleasures that tease to taste but never satiate. The carnival cannot sustain itself. What we desire and how we desire determine the contour, the meaning of our world. We move throughout various worlds at differing stages of life, searching each world for something we seem to have lost. We know only enough to know we are lost. To know that we are lost, however, is the beginning of a quest. Not to know is to be in despair. So, well, Kierkegaardian philosophy there with the Knight of Cups, this idea that we know only that we are lost, but once we realize that, that begins our quest. Hence, basically this whole thing <laughs> has been a lead up to the moment of being like, I'm, I'm a sad little angst ball. I'm going to do something about it. <laughs> That's essentially what this movie is. It's like, oh, man, I live in an aesthetic prison, and I want to wake up. L.A., the aesthetic prison. Yeah. Basically, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so basically... Whether or not that's your cup of tea, that's a different question. But this movie, totally lucid. Makes total sense if you bring your source material to the table. Just bring a few books and some poetry and, you know, you'll you'll be there. You'll, you'll be there. You know, study the tarot for a little bit and, yeah, Knight of Cups. Straightforward. Speaking of straightforward, the top five. My honorable mention. I didn't have a good honorable mention. My honorable mention goes out to... Natalie Portman's toes. Yeah, no, she's got nice feet. She got actually. There is a what that press conference for whatever reason at some point. Christian Bale just says, "Oh, Natalie, she, yeah, she's she's got great toes." Yeah, he looked a little into it, so yeah. I feel that. <laughs> you know, my honorable mention goes out to that dog. That dog that was trying to catch his little ball <laughs> just, and oh, failing, so and he bad. kept trying and oh, he was pushing man. through that water. Basically, our movie within the movie. The 32 second cut of A Knight's, not A Knight's Tale, The Knight of Cups, <laughs> right there in that dog. Mm -hmm. Who's your number five? My number five is not a who, a what, or even a how, but a where. The City of Los Angeles. All right, yeah. It's a film that takes place in Los Angeles that uh, you could think is trying to make Los Angeles look desolate and dreary. I don't know. Does it? Exactly. You don't know. And that's the interesting thing. So, yeah. You're number five. A desert that faces the ocean, you know? <laughs> My number five is Terrence Malick. All right. He has a style and he sticks to it. And I respect that he directs movies the way he wants to direct movies. All right. That's your number four. That was, okay, you got me there. My no number four was Terrence Malick, indeed. He's just always seen like one of those filmmakers. You say to yourself, man, I should really get into his films, but God, who has the time? But 
I appreciate what Terrence Malick brings to the table, and I hope I have some time to look into his other films at some point. I, his uh, his IMDb is full of uh, of great other pieces, like 2018 short film filmed on Pixel Three. <laughs> All right, your number. Four. four. My yeah. number four is the production design and Jack Fisk. Mm-hmm. Love his work. And I love everything that just gets set inside the frames mm-hmm. here. Beautiful film. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. Whether or not it makes any sense to you, that's that's one thing. But we don't it is care. pretty. We don't it doesn't yeah. it's it's pretty. Pokes. It is pretty. All of the objects are very cultivated. It's a great time. <laughs> Who's your number three? My number three is actually the sound design for the film. Holy shit, mine too. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> and the score. I think the score is working really it, well hand in hand it's with a, the sound It's design. a combination of the sound effects, the, the voiceover work, uh, yeah, the music as well. Uh, I was hearing great, hilarious things about when they were recording the voiceover for this. Not only did they film this thing from a let's start before we're ready kind of standpoint, sometimes even the voiceover work would be like that. Christian Bale said that there were some times he would get a text or an email from Terrence Malick with some lines, and he would just be in his pickup truck. And he's like, fine, I'll just I'll record it here. Let's do that. Send it off to Terrence Malick, and then some of it ended up in the movie. That's just how they did things. They'd be all crazy. And the sound effects are really kind of what helped to unite all these very disparate clips of video from various film cameras filmed during various points in different parts of the country. The sound effects, yeah, just tie it all together and that dreamy musical score that guide us through this journey all the way through. Yeah, there's a certain leitmotif refrain that happens in the score that pops up over and over again that is our one constant that Mm -hmm. is very dreamlike. Who is number two? I'm assuming we probably have the same one and two, actually. We might. Who is my number two? Who are my number two, London? Because my number two, well, my number two is the cast. But specifically, mostly Christian Bale, because he is the guy carrying all of this. But I just, you have to give props to a cast that is performing in such a freeform manner. The fact that you know, like we said earlier, Christian Bale, he's put into a scene where he has to pick up a woman at an art gallery or whatever the hell. And where his mind goes is, where do you live? Because I want to write you a letter. Like, wow, that is, that's Batman's move, man. That's how Batman does his thing. And to just be the emotional core of a movie where emotions are so abstract and free-flowing is pretty wild. And Honestly, a lot to ask ask of an actor. You would think, oh, he doesn't have any lines, so it must have been really easy. I don't think so. I think this lines would have, like, having dialogue written down for him may have made this a lot easier on Christian Bale. But uh, no, man, stepped up to the task and was just ready to go for it. And other actors like Natalie Portman and Kate Blanchett were also of the same mindset. So I like that. You're number two. Mine are also in who are situation, but it is okay. not the cast. Oh. It is the editors oh, on okay. this film. Yeah, yeah. So much footage, <laughs> so much random footage of butterflies landing on leaves and guests at a party filmed with wide-angle GoPros or whatever. So the amount of stuff they must have gotten, especially knowing how Malik films things, which is let's just film everything and see what happens. 
I have no idea how many hours of footage they were working with, but I can assume that it is a lot. It took four editors on this film to just give it different passes and pick out different stuff to create and carve out this narrative. In that fashion, it becomes a very interesting work of classic montage elements of the Eisenstein sort of variety, this idea that putting together two or more images in juxtaposition with each other back to back or even overlaid creates more meaning than a single image alone. And this is an entire exercise in montage and collage, more or less, because we just get a whole bunch of disparate images that are then getting tied together to create a certain theme, mostly under the guise of the Pilgrim's Progress and other things that we can look to and point to and say, they're making this reference so we can use this as a narrative structure, but this is much more of a meaning derived from aesthetics and feeling, which is kind of ironic since it seems to be critiquing that philosophy in the same way, but that is how this film is functioning to derive meaning. So paradoxes, paradoxes all around, but great editing job. So there we go. Indeed. And I'm assuming our number one is at least the same. Is it Emmanuel? Yes, the goddamn angel that yes. is Emmanuel Levinsky. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. Dude. Such a talent. Nicely done, man. Nicely done. Again, much like the editing deserves so much respect, the cinematography on this deserves so much respect because it is a beautiful film, gorgeously shot film. And normally, a film that is shot in a beautiful manner that looks so painterly, that is looks like it's staged so well, looks that way because everyone took a lot of time to set up shots to make those things happen. And as we've discussed, that clearly was not happening here. I mean, there are some standalone shots here and there that clearly were set up very deliberately to be framed up just the right way to get the horizon looking good. But even the stuff where it's very clear they started before they were ready, it still looks good. So, my God, Emmanuel Leminski, bringing the thunder, like, at a drop of a hat. Yeah. Gorgeous film. That mm -hmm. is the thing that I loved about this film the first time I saw it. It's what kept me there, and it was what has allowed me to watch it multiple times, because it's nothing else that <laughs> captivates my attention in this specifically. Not saying the rest of it's bad, it's just usually not my kind of movie. The way that Terrence Malick makes movies is generally not my kind of film, except for the fact that he always brings the cinematography. Mm -hmm. and so if he gives yeah. me something pretty to look at, goddammit, I'm there. And so... <laughs> Yeah, just drags me in. And I can't remember what the safe word was. Oh, yes, I do kind of remember what the safe word was because we've already said it. I'm so times. confused, London. If only there was a way to know without a shadow of a, of a doubt yes. what the safe word was. As we safe word out here, we'll say that this is a film that is very obscure in a lot of ways, but it's also very clear in what it's doing in a lot of ways. It tells us right at the top, it's doing the Pilgrim's Progress, tells us it's doing the Pym of the Pearl or what have you. So all you need to do is do your research. And that's what we're trying to do for you here, just to bring you, as we say for it out, a little bit of clarity into your film